The SGGQA podcast is brought to you in part by Me Audio. So here's the deal. If you've ever seen me in a live stream or in an interview or some other kind of video, you've probably seen me wearing some fancy earbuds. For the last couple years, my work buds have been almost exclusively from Me Audio. Excellent drivers, fantastic accessories, and both my wife and I had our ears scanned by the folks at Me Audio for custom molded ear tips. Super comfy. The MX line of Pro in-ear monitors is one of the easiest lineups to understand, starting at $60 and built around actual professional use. Detailed sound and durable construction, but also with some fun options like customizable faceplates. Even if you're not working on stage or in studio, Pro solutions like these are fantastic audio options, and they don't need to break the bank. And the company also supports a lineup of consumer gear with options for true wireless and noise-canceling Bluetooth earbuds, adapters for TVs to stream your audio to nicer headphones, and headsets for kids to help control the volume on fresh, developing ears. I can't stress that last one enough. We have to start kids out with healthier listening habits. It's a great combo, high-quality audio gear built by a team of folks with recording-grade use in mind, but at consumer-friendly prices. But of course, I can do you one better. If you shop the kit at meaudio.com and use promo code SOMEGADGETGUY at checkout, you can save an additional 10% over their already competitive prices. Once again, meaudio.com, M-E-E, audio.com. Shop some fun kit, promo code SOMEGADGETGUY at checkout, 10% off. Keep your ears and your wallet happy at the same time. I want to thank the folks at Me Audio for hooking up the promo code. Now, let's get on with the show. All right. I believe this means we are live. Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, tech fans of all shapes and sorts and sizes and persuasions, welcome to another episode of the Monday Morning Tech Chat Show on the SGGQA podcast channel. I'm Juan Carlos Bagnell, a.k.a. Some Gadget Guy, uh, the SGG of this horrifically named podcast series, but the QA. (laughs) That's the important part. Uh, as that obviously stands for question and answer, We're, I like to hold a, a bit more of an interactive conversation about the tech news as we sort of uh, get up to speed on everything that's going on. And, and uh, we've got a lot of news this week. Um, this is a really heavy news block week. And, and I feel like some of the uh, ebb and flow, like we get a surge of product releases and then we kind of back off for a little bit and we get another surge and MWC is right around the corner. So the, the Mobile World Congress trade show is going to be going on in Barcelona this year. That's going to be another enormous surge of product announcements and teases and prototypes and, you know, what else we're going to do with the 5G because still 5G has not really been realized for a good chunk of consumers out there. So this week, it's it's news block heavy, but I do also want to spend some time. So the gadget block this week, instead of going off on a cranky rant about, you know, like xenophobia in tech reporting, um, I've been spending a lot of time with the Razer Edge. We tried doing sort of a game screen sharing demo on Best of Our Week, if you caught that uh, last week. That kind of crashed and burned. 
Um, I don't know what was going on with my setup. Uh, my Elgato and my uh, USB capture card did not want to screen share with the the Razer Edge live. Before the podcast, uh, before the broadcast worked great. After the broadcast, got it working again. During the broadcast, nerp. So I, I, I worry that there's some kind of copy protection thing in there. But instead of that. Um, <laughs> <laughs> We're going to spend some time talking about that. Um, and I also have my Steam Deck over here, too, so we can do a little uh, uh, a little comparison. I feel like there's an interesting idea that we're just chipping away at mobile entertainment. And this could be a really... Uh, this, this could be a really important step. It's not the completion of a journey. It's just... We're, uh, you know what? I'm, I'm not going to keep teasing it. Gadget Block, we're going to be talking about Razor Edge. Because I've just been playing a ton of games and I flip and love it. So um, I hope everybody had a lovely weekend. Uh, the uh, Sunday, um, Lex kind of tapped me on the shoulder and said, we need a daddy-daughter day. And I agreed. And so I kind of unplugged for almost the entire day. <laughs> People like trying to get a hold of me. And they're like, you know what? No. It's Sunday of a three-day weekend and my daughter wants to go on a coffee date. And, and like, well, for her, she's seven. So it's a hot chocolate it's a daddy-daughter coffee hot chocolate date. And we spent the uh, the morning it through lunch just kind of walking around. And we spent a long time just kind of going through shops. And she was adding things to her wish lists. And it was it was really sweet. And I kind of needed that time. So um, hopefully uh, everybody else out there had a, had a good weekend too. I'm seeing it was a cafe date. Thank you. A daddy-daughter cafe date. Um <laughs> I, I love so I, okay. I, I've got to highlight this because Dave Dave puts this up there. Please do not derail the podcast to answer my question. And his question is genuine question: Are the big tent pole tech channels still getting the traffic they used to? I fell off the oversold hype train. I think everybody is finding some kind of pain point in how they're managing coverage, and and I think the biggest of the big tent pole channels are kind of consolidating traffic, so they're probably doing better in just driving whatever popularity algorithm they're supporting. If you already know the answer to the question and you want someone to spoon feed you what you think you already know, then those channels are the ones that are primarily, um, primarily sort of influenced by algorithmic sorting traffic. On channels my size, where I tried to compare and contrast, or I try to highlight specific uses, I think a number of channels my size and maybe a little bit larger are finding that that like the way that we've been making YouTube videos has been deprioritized by whatever software Google is using. And uh, it's definitely been a bit of a challenge. I wrote up an editorial. Um, You know what? We can use this to kind of segue into... uh, into housekeeping. First, just thank you everybody for jumping in. I'm seeing an amazing list of people in the chat. I was about to go do the romper room thing where we list everybody's names and I still want to do that, but you, we've got a good, I mean, let's get into housekeeping. So I'm not <laughs> burning my voice out. I really can't um, make, make this another two and a half hour long podcast today. So uh, I, I, uh, I was in a live stream, and I think, Barry, yeah, Barry Johnson has at least kind of popped up into the chat, and we, we've been sharing this kind of conversation, you know, sort of airing some of our frustrations and being there to kind of back each other up, because we get into these conversations in, in comments. Uh, we, 
there's a there's a tech reviewer who wants to make videos and be popular for making videos. And then there are people like me where every video I make is kind of the first post on a forum. And I want the conversation to happen under that forum post because I myself enjoy the interaction of having fun conversations. And unfortunately, that's one of the massive hits to YouTube. YouTube really does not do a good job of facilitating that kind of threaded conversation anymore. I usually get maybe one hot comment on each video where people reply to that comment and there's some kind of interaction and it's just so dead compared to the golden age of YouTube that I started in. But during the live stream, and one of the reasons why I like doing kind of an interactive chat um, to to talk about tech news, that's as close as we get. Where we can have a little bit more of a back and forth, a little bit more of an exchange in real time. And, And if anyone ever wants to drop a comment, after the fact, I'm always interested in kind of following up on what we talk about here on the podcast, especially for folks, folks on the replay crew that are catching the audio side of this. So Barry and I have been uh, sharing some of our grievances. <laughs> I just saw that, Gary the Fireman, housekeeping 30 minutes long. It, this is a part of what we're talking about today. So yes, housekeeping probably will be a little bit longer. This. So... We're in, a, we're in a live stream. Barry's actually on video, and I'm just kind of lurking in the chat. And the topic of one-inch camera sensors comes up. And without calling a direct comparison to current Samsung devices, you got a bunch of Samsung knights going, well, it's not really worth it, or one-inch sensors don't really do anything, or what you need is the 200 megapixels. And purposely trying to conflate resolution with sensor size, what that means to the optical characteristics of a photo, and trying to explain, you just got a bunch of kind of, um, I mean, like how Sean would put it, contrarian. They're just being contrarian. But it's that kind of Samsung night topic where nothing you say matters, everything Samsung does is correct, and they're only there to exhaust the conversation because no data will convince them. It doesn't matter what you show them or what you tell them or how you've done the math, at at some point they dig in their heels, they they stick their fingers in their ears, and then they just kind of keep repeating this sort of tired, but it's, it's my earnest opinion, it's my opinion. My opinion is different than your opinion, and it's just opinions, guys. And no, an opinion can be wrong. <laughs> I, I am putting it on record. The move to the one-inch camera sensor is one of the most fundamental watershed moments in mobile smartphone photography. It, it moves us up to a tier where smartphone camera sensors are directly comparable against super 16 millimeter film that feature films are still shot on today. It moves us up to a tier where it's almost directly competing against the sensor quality of micro four thirds mirrorless cameras. I'm, I'm streaming this on a $1,000 uh, Lumix G9 with a $1,000 lens. And if I could find a clean video output for one of my um, like a Vivo or a Xiaomi, like if I could plug us and, and have like the video out go directly and be a clean without all of the stuff on the screen. Like right now I see, you know, my focus indicator and my VU and like all of the, the settings and stuff, but you don't see that on your screen. That's a clean video output. If I could get a clean video output on a Vivo, it would probably look better. And the autofocus would definitely be better. <laughs> As we all know about Panasonic autofocus, if you know about cameras. So we've got these people just kind of like 
pushing back against this idea, but it's not through any meritocracy. It's just the best phone that I can get my hands on is going to be a Note 23, and I like Samsung, so it doesn't matter what any other company is doing. And then just getting weird comments from techies who really should have known better. Like tech reviewers, well, eventually the one-inch sensor will get there, but it's not good enough yet. And you're like, you'd have to ignore years of photographic evidence and bridge cameras that have used one-inch sensors. Where did that come from? And, oh, but the stabilization, that's a problem. And you're like, no, (laughs) it's really not. Like, I've got this Vivo here, and not only is just the regular stabilization basically on par. I mean, because scientifically, let's be fair, it is more difficult to stabilize a one-inch camera sensor. It is a larger sensor. So it does take different operating mechanics to stabilize, hardware stabilize that. But most of the stabilization that you see in video is not hardware stabilization. It's software. So all you need to do is crop in and use software to manipulate the frame. And that's essentially identical. It doesn't really matter sensor size at that point. As long as your sensor algorithm, your your software stabilization algorithm is able to correct for that and you can kind of crop in enough, then it's sort of the same. And if that were true, then we would all still be using tiny, tiny little sensors because that's way easier to stabilize. But that's not what we're doing. <laughs> and then you, you have to then purposely ignore things like Vivo software processing has horizon leveling. So you start shooting and it locks your horizon. And then you can turn the phone a full 360 degrees and it will never lose that horizon lock your video will stay perfectly level no matter what orientation you're turning the phone. And that's on a one-inch sensor. So I, I, I put together some of those thoughts, and that's on, I've been sharing more of these as production diary entries on the Patreon. This one is titled, The Miseducation of Smartphone Camera Nerds, Have I Overestimated Techies? And it's been... <laughs> Um, it, it's been it's been a challenge because we have overpromised consumers on resolution. This is this isn't new to smartphones. This is going all the way back to standalone cameras, megapixels, megapixels. Me- does this have more megapixels? And we've also oversold consumers on zoom. Is it a 10x zoom? How many X's does it have? Does it have more X's? I need the one with more X's, which doesn't mean anything. You could have like a, 30 t- a 30x zoom, but then have a really limited zoom range if you have an, a really wide um, angle lens. So we, we keep serving consumers sort of a, a misrepresentation of what makes photography better. And then we've got techies that only focus on the average consumers when we know maybe 10% of the Android smartphone marketplace is going to be interested in a $1,000 phone. And that's nowhere near an average. You should never say average on a $1,000 Android phone. That makes zero sense. And you're purposely missing or misrepresenting the device at this point if you're continuing to hold to that narrative. There's no sales data to support that. There's no marketing data to support that. There's no consumer trend to support that. The only reason you would review this phone as average is if you're too lazy or too ignorant to use more of the phone. That's it. 
I mean, at this point, there's nothing else I can demonstrate. I'm tired of, well, but I mean, it's his real opinion, and oh, but maybe I need to give consideration for that. I'm not going to sit here and make a video for less than 10% of the smartphone market that's really buying these things, and then only use the product to its bare minimum use when phones like the Pixel 6a and the Poco X5 exist. Because those are average consumer phones. They're brilliant. They're amazing products. They're super powerful, good cameras, great screens. There's average. <laughs> those are still overkill for a lot of our estimation of average consumers. So I, I, I wrote up this article... And, and it was, it was, a, this is definitely a diary entry. It's kind of getting some of this stuff out because I, I'm so unimpressed. Um, I'm hoping that I will be able to just kind of borrow uh, a Note 23 soon just to do a little comparison. I, I do believe that Samsung software processing has probably improved, but I'm not expecting much different when the sensor size hasn't changed and all they've done is added tinier little subpixels. That's actually not good for things like low light performance. So um, that's kind of where we're at. <laughs> um, hold on, let me kind of get through here. <laughs> so Jman150 and and this is another thing that, that kind of bothers me. Uh, most of the time at full 100x zoom, it is terrible, mostly on Sam Samsung devices, just for example. Um, when it comes to the telephoto sensors on our cameras, it matters to me. It matters way more what kind of sensor we're using, and the larger the sensor, the less zoom you'll have. This is just a function of crop right? The, you put a bigger sensor in there and you just have less room to put a, a monster telephoto lens. Once you start cropping into that sensor, which is always one of the smaller sensors on your phone, the telephoto is never the same size or is rarely the same size as the main sensor on your phone, just because telephoto lenses need more, need more depth. And even with a periscope sensor, it's still like, that's a lot to put into a phone. Once you start cutting into the resolution, all phones are going to degrade. But what matters more to me is, did I start with a larger sensor that's better at soaking up light? And there are phones like the Xiaomi 12S Ultra. There are phones like the Pixel, uh, Pixel 6 and 7 Pro. Uh, the Axon 40 had a reasonably large telephoto sensor. They all outclass the telephoto sensors that Samsung puts on. But Samsung uses a tiny little sensor. It's a, it's a quarter-inch type sensor a one over four inch type sensor on the S23 and S23 Plus. And I think it's a one over 3.5. Someone please correct me on that on the, the Note 23. Those dinky little sensors are great for super long reach when you're in bright conditions. They're really good. But if I want to shoot a photo of my daughter playing in our living room and she's doing something really cute, and I don't want to shove a phone right in her face, they're miserable for indoor photography. Very often, they just switch to the main camera sensor and crop zoom from the main camera sensor. So it's at that native resolution that I think these things work really well for some of their intended purposes. But I'm not regularly taking photo, trying to take photos at a distance of the moon, and I'm very often trying to take indoor, dimly lit, candid shots where a Pixel 7 Pro just demolishes um, 
phones with smaller telephoto sensors. That kind of application matters. So what I've just described to you has now given you data where you could make an informed purchasing decision. Let's say the majority of your photography is shooting soccer on a weekend with your kids in bright daylight. You probably want the smaller sensor with the longer reach. That makes sense to me. If your uses are more like mine, where you're trying to kind of sniper really lovely moments of actual human activity and you're not just sitting there and perfectly posing people and then trying to use a night mode, then you'd want the larger sensor that's better in more challenging lighting conditions. There's no winner there. Do you see, do you see how, how easy that was? You don't say, well, Samsung is the bestest because it's got 100x zooms. But I can't use them in my living room. <laughs> like, this is really easy. <laughs> Pop on tech, but one, I read one bazillion megapixels and 10 bazillion times zoom. And, and those are the big numbers. And that gets people really excited because the numbers are bigger. And they have nothing to do with, like, the artistic or photographic or optical quality of your images. And like I said, I, I took my daughter out for a daddy-daughter date, and I shot the whole thing on the Vivo X90. And we still don't share Lex on social media. But on the Discord, I did get one cute little photo. Actually, you know what? I, I think that one's okay, because most of her face is blocked. So let me, let me see if I can pull this up. And we're, we're just going to, oh, let me, let me see if I can actually just, oh yeah, this will be better. So this is already compressed just from having been uploaded. And Discord is now doing a thing where it kind of shrinks the file sizes down. So it's actually not quite as sharp as we'd want to see. But um, this is, this is my daughter just on our little cafe date. And her, she's, she's drinking from uh, her hot chocolate cup here at a coffee bean, this podcast, not sponsored by coffee bean. And, and I'm across just a cafe table. So a couple feet away and her eyes are razor sharp and the strands of her hair look gorgeous. And the depth of field plane of focus is on her eyes and is already blurring out from the distance of the coffee lid. Like that is incredible optical performance for a phone. And what I'm showing here on the stream is being able to see the palm trees reflected in her eyelights, the highlights in her eyes, razor sharp. Like I can almost, in the actual photo, not, not the compressed image that got sent up to Discord, I'm able to see the textural different, the, the textural landscape of her iris in this photo. And then maybe what, two centimeters? into the coffee lid, it's already starting to blur out. This is not software. This is not a portrait mode. This is me pulling a phone out of the pocket, immediately lifting it up to her face as she's taking a sip of hot chocolate. So this is in action. This is not her posing for this photo and nailing a seven-year-old who can't sit still for anything where the whole rest of the scene is already falling out of focus. Her fingers are blurry because they're not in the plane of focus, not because software has blurred her fingers. And you don't really notice things like all the decorations on the back wall or the person who's sitting right behind her because that is optical performance. That is the advantage of using a larger sensor on a phone. So I, I, I don't know how else to like continue demonstrating that. Like 
this lets me leave my micro four thirds cameras at home because optically this is almost directly comparable against what I would be shooting from $2,000 worth of camera and lens. And that makes me excited. I can't do this. this. This exact shot would not have looked as photographic from a Pixel. It would not have looked as photographic from an iPhone or from a Samsung. This is unique optical performance to a one-inch type sensor. There's no way around that. So if you care about those optical qualities in photography, not just does it have the good HDR colors, there is a tangible improvement to moving up in sensor size. And it was just like, this is just one of my favorite photos. It's such a lovely moment of my daughter just kind of looking out a cafe window and sipping on a hot chocolate. It just looks good. <laughs> I just love it. <laughs> The iron, so this is from Farhan. The irony about the telephoto camera on Samsung flagship is that they used to put a 48 megapixel half inch four times zoom camera on the S20 Ultra. After that, it's gone for a dual three times and 10x zoom. I'd rather have the 48 megapixel 4x zoom camera back. It's, I mean, they went a little smaller on the Pixel 7 Pro also, but they, they're using a better pixel binning uh, sensor. So it's a little column A, column B. Um, I, there are times I kind of prefer the uh, the native focal range of the Pixel 6 Pro. I think the Pixel 6 Pro telephoto is actually a little bit better in that when you're not trying to zoom, it just nails that shot. The Pixel 7 Pro, it's a little more use again, in brighter conditions, it's a little more useful when you want to do a two-time zoom. So at 10x instead of 5x, the pixel sampling is pretty good. It's just, man, that's tough. <laughs> oh, I thanks for that, man. I appreciate it. I love this photo. I mean, again, it's just such a, a, a candid moment slice of life. Ike says, these are my favorite types of shots to take. For me personally, the one-inch sensors were made for those types of shots. Uh, beautiful photo. Um, it's, it's just really pretty. Uh, from getting the Xiaomi 12S Ultra... One of the absolute first shutter presses that I took on the Xiaomi 12S Ultra was Lex and Marie in a Barnes & Noble. And it looks like film. <laughs> I mean, it looks like what we think of as sort of a journalistic but proper camera photo, photograph. Um, and it's nothing special. They're sitting on a little bench in the kids' section at a Barnes & Noble, and they're both looking at the same book together. And the background is is just so soft, and they pop from that. And it has nothing to do with software. It has nothing to do with portrait modes. It was just an off-the-cuff, double-tap the power button, hit the shutter, put the phone back in my pocket, and it looks stunning. So uh, it, it's that kind of stuff. Like, you're not going to impress me with more megapixels. I want to see what you can do with a, a, a more impressive sensor lens combination. Oh, Farhan, thanks for double checking. So Farhan double checked the math. I checked the telephoto camera on the Note 23. Uh, they're one over 3.52 inch type sensors. That's even smaller than the one over 3.24 on the telephoto of the S21 Ultra. So Samsung went, I mean, I'm sure they're newer sensors, which they're probably 
better or more expensive. I don't know that there's a radical fundamental optical difference if you're looking at a 1 over 3.52 versus a 1 over 3.24. Man, that's that's a lot of numbers in there. Um, but those are teeny. Those are tiny little sensors, and they're smaller than a lot of cameras, selfie cameras now. So I'm sure that is excellent telephoto reach when you're out in sunlight. It is not good. Those are not great performing sensors when you're in indoor conditions, and especially when you're in dim, cozy living room light, or if you're trying to shoot in more mixed nighttime kinds of photos, unless you're kind of using software trickery for night modes and upscaling resolution and all that jazz, in which case it doesn't matter. You should just get a pixel because pixels actually do that pretty good. Yeah, Barry Barry knows what I'm talking about because we're, we're sort of on the one-inch sensor bandwagon. He says, agreed, Ike, these types of sensors are so impressive with that one-inch. Um, Gormlord. Okay, so this is this is fun. It, it's, I'm, I'm really glad you brought this up. Um, at some point, there will be a podcast with like a news block in here, but I'm having fun right now. <laughs> and I need to have more fun. Um, okay, Gormlord writes, by, by that logic, wouldn't the Nokia Lumia 1020 41 megapixel camera outperform the 16 megapixel cameras of today? So this is my Lumia 1020. Isn't it hilarious how I always seem to have some of these phones within arm's reach because I love them so much? So what's so impressive is this was a two-third inch type sensor. We've started messing with our fractions and sort of simplifying down to decimal points in the fraction, right? So this sensor is just a tiny hair bigger than the sensor in the 300 euro... Poco X5. The Poco X5 is now using a 1 over 1.5. 1 over 1.56, I think. It's either the 1 over 1.56 or the 1 over 1.52. I can't memorize all of this. Regardless, if you you (laughs) multiply to get an even number on the denominator, 1 over 1.5 is kind of the same as saying... 2 over 3. So 2 third inch type sensor, 2 third inch type sensor. But the fundamental difference is going to a, a uh, pixel binning sub-pixel arrangement. So this is a 12 megapixel camera that's advertised as a 108 megapixel camera. But really, each pixel is just cut into a 3 by 3 grid. It's a 12 megapixel camera. It's not 108. There is sort of a software upscaling demosaic mode that gives you a little bit more clarity and a little bit more resolution to play with, but the real practical use is going to be 12 megapixels. The Lumia has a real 41 megapixel sensor with a traditional RGB grid or arrangement of all of those pic- of all of those pixels. So there are different kinds of things at play. I would say today we have gotten to a point where we can kind of match the optical performance of what the Lumia 1020 was doing for sub $500. A $500 phone or less is pretty good at matching just the optical quality of the historic and, and the, the, the vaunted 
<laughs> Lumia 1020. Above $500, we should be able to outperform it further, <laughs> and, and we can. Once you get into, like, a, a Vivo X70, a Pixel 6 or 7 Pro, once you start playing with some of those combinations of sensors, that's where we've really taken mobile photography to another optical tier. And the one-inch sensor is just is just a stunning improvement over where we were before. So it, it, it's kind of funny, because you're, you're sort of comparing different technologies, different applications, but... Optics, you eventually get to a point where you're like, I'm looking at a sensor and I'm looking at a lens. What, what do we see? And that tend to, you know, like I actually pulled this out just to kind of shoot around with it. I think I need to do one more just like, hey, y'all remember the 1020? Wasn't that fun? Because the last time I pulled the 1020 out, I was, I was seriously worried that we were going to see companies like Huawei only focus on multi-camera. And in that video, I did the Mate 10 Pro versus the Lumia 1020. And in that video, I'm, I'm completely wrong. I'm completely incorrect. Like, I guess it's just over for larger sensors when we can do these smaller sensor combo pairings. I am so happy to be wrong <laughs> from that video. I love it. Love it. Hey, folks, are you getting bored of the current collection of tech and geek commentary on the Internet? Is the discussion of new electronics feeling a bit stale? Do you want to find some fresh voices to add to your subscription queue? Check out the community on r glowing rectangles on Reddit. Now, this subreddit was built to help new voices in the tech community find more audience, and we need your support. Sharing, commenting, and those precious, tasty upvotes. Reddit can radically help a content creator expand their reach. Do you know a producer who deserves more attention? Do you just want to find fun new stuff? Head on over to reddit.com slash r slash glowing rectangles and share or browse to your heart's content. Once again, reddit.com slash r slash glowing rectangles and let's build something cool together. Oh, easy. Thanks, man. I mean, it's, it's uh, you know, I, I feel we're brothers in arms for trying to share our experiences here. Uh, easy Computer Solutions saying, I absolutely love the real talk. Thanks, Juan, for all you do. It's, um, I, I feel it's like, it, it's really just, we're trying to do a consistent job of sharing experiences. Um, that's what matters, but I'm not a fan of sharing only positive experiences from the companies that make me more money on video and only sharing negative experiences from the companies that make me less money so that I can reinforce why people who use more popular products should stick with that. I don't believe Samsung's getting it done. I am not looking to the Note 23 as the premier content creation platform for 2023. I think Xiaomi and I think Vivo have Samsung licked. I think the Note 23 is going to be very good on a spectrum of content creation phones, starting from like I was holding up that Poco, from like $300 to $1,500, the Note 23 is going to be near the, the top of the heap, but it's not going to be the top of the heap. And that's, that's fair. That to me demonstrates the variability and the different features and the different capabilities that we should be looking at in a conversation about pros and cons. But every single time I pick up a one inch sensor camera phone, I am taking and composing photographs in a fundamentally different way than when I pick up even a really good sensored phone like a Pixel 7 which is the same size sensor as your Note 23. I have a different eye for what I am trying to achieve on these phones, and I am actively 
trying to push those phones even harder than I am on even the really good premium tier devices. My prediction, especially once I can maybe borrow one of these for a bit, because I'm not going to buy a Note 23. Um, my prediction is the, the Note is actually going to stand yet again as maybe the top tier productivity option. S Pen, Dex, man, that's a monster workhorse computer. But I think it's sliding on camera tech, and I don't think Samsung is really looking to bolster that. They don't have an answer to this new Sony sensor. And if any company can dramatically improve smartphone photography hardware, it's the company that makes almost all of the most exciting um, <laughs> hardware. Oh, Kavakash. It was, it was brilliant, dude. Kavakash writes, Lex was lost in that hot chocolate. You have those moments as a parent where it's like, I'm just sitting at this cafe. My phone is face down on the table. I picked it up just to snap this one shot, and I put the phone back down. And you're like, I got to see it. I got to see my daughter just kind of like sip this hot chocolate just through that little bit of whipped cream that's on the top. She's looking out at this like uh, open field for this outdoor mall that we're at. She's watching people walk by. I think in this moment, she's watching a woman like walk by with this like jowly boxer um, of a puppy dog. And it was great. It was just such a lovely little moment and something that we haven't had much of over the last couple of years. I just got an, an alert from OneDrive. It's like, hey, three years ago, you were moving into your new place. And you're like, oh, man, that's the place we moved to. And then two weeks later, all of the lockdowns started. And the pandemic really started getting scary. And we were wiping down our groceries and, and like, going to Costco and, and like, ridiculous multi-mask setups and stuff. And, and it feels like even though we've been out of the pandemic that we're still only just taking those baby steps um, into, into real life again. Oh, Raymond did. I'm sorry. I thought I said I took that photo with the Vivo X90. So the X90 Pro one inch sensor, I, 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 can't, I can't say enough nice things about how ridiculous that, that sensor software combo really is. And, and again, the improvements have also come to things like autofocus performance, HDR performance, uh, the clarity, the sharpness, the lens quality. This is, this is backed by Zeiss. So Xiaomi has a partnership with Leica. Vivo has a partnership with Lice. With <laughs> I totally messed that up, didn't I? Xiaomi has a partnership with Leica. Vivo has a partnership with Zeiss. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, the, the new lens coatings on these smartphone cameras are phenomenal. So uh, that's actually an area Samsung improved tremendously last year, too. So when you get those, like, distracting lens flares or those immediate reflections, that is also another one of those huge improvements where there's less distracting you in the photo because of optical degradation, because of these tiny little lenses. These new lens arrays are extremely impressive considering how much sensor they need to cover and that this still, it's chunky. It's got a big lump on the back of it, but it still fits in your pocket. I've never seen anything like that. The lens quality that I usually look at for my mirrorless cameras looks like this. You know, so this is, this is a lot less pocketable this is a lot more. This has a slightly faster aperture. This is almost as shallow in terms of depth of field. 
this is what I'm not carrying anymore because I can just walk out the door with this. And if we can't properly acknowledge how exciting that is, then we're really not doing our job as techies. Oh, Muppinish, that phone broke my heart. Have you ever tried the Nokia PureView phone? Um, I've got it right over there. The Nokia 9 was exciting for being such a crazy experiment. And then I feel Nokia completely crushed my soul with that phone. Um, the depth tracking, the multi-camera setup, it was, it was amazing. Um, they didn't properly support it. They never really fixed some of the major issues with it. And then the company that made that lens array for them kind of went out of business. And Nokia themselves, HMD, I should say, never really did much with it on their own. In fact, some people claim that they ended up disabling multiple camera sensors just to have a more traditional just main sensor with the depth data attached to it. And I wouldn't be surprised if that was true. I, I've got it over there and it's a gorgeously built phone and it really just soured me on doing any, re any recommendation for HMD uh, in the premium tier. Um, it's really, really sad. <laughs> I saw a question in here about, oh, I think I've, I've lost it, sorry. Someone asked like a question about comparing like the Vivo X80 versus the Note and that's a great question, but um, I can't find the, the actual question anymore. Oh, um, here we go. Vivo X80 Pro or Note 23 for cameras. So I personally, um, I would lean Vivo if you're telling me you want like the best camera performance. Now that comes with a bunch of caveats. I think Samsung's telephotos are better than Vivo's telephotos for the, for the far reach. So in very good light, they both use tiny dinky little super telephoto sensors, but the super telephoto sensor on the Samsung is, is stronger. Vivo has a really good portrait sensor though. So if you're taking photos of people in kind of a head and shoulders look, they've got a 50, uh, a 50 millimeter equivalent that looks really good. And I like that better than what Samsung is doing. But Samsung is more evenly supporting better video across all of their sensors. Um, the video capabilities on the X80 Pro really only max at the ultra wide and the main camera sensor. So it, it's pros and cons, but you get to the end of that comparison. And the thing that I really like about Vivo is their low light and HDR processing is incredibly impressive. So you hold up the phone and you tap like a regular photo and the regular auto exposure will look like most other cameras night modes in, in low light or in challenging light. And then you go to their night mode and it can turn night into day. And if you don't need that, then you can slide the exposure down and in a shorter period of time than what a Samsung can do, it just nails this incredibly rich, dark, no noise, perfect clarity on all of your subject, accurate color for all of that. And it squishes all that down into a really impressive um, uh, setup. So it depends on if you're shooting more photos, or if you're shooting more video, if you like to play with some of those more advanced photography tools, if you like to bracket, if you like to edit from DNG files, Super Raw is still amazing on the Vivo X80 Pro. Um, it's tough. I, I wouldn't. I wouldn't say one completely wins across the board, 
But for what I like to do and where I like to really stress a camera in more challenging shooting uh, situations is I would definitely go Vivo personally. <clears throat> um, oh, man, I'm way behind on this chat. <laughs> Dave, you knew what you were doing. Um, Dave says, I'm really digging this conversation. I'm sorry to have helped in absolutely derailing the podcast. Uh, we're going we're gonna to jump into the news block here. Don't, don't worry about that because the news block is kind of uh, tired and depressing. And uh, I, I just want it to be highlighted. We're not going to sit there and deep dive on every article. Uh, Barry Johnson, Super Raw is game-changing. Super Raw on Vivo phones is so game-changing that both Apple and Samsung have copied it. <laughs> Expert Raw on the, uh, on the Galaxy is basically the same kind of DNG stacking that Vivo nailed with the V2 coprocessor. And Apple Pro Raw is also a demosaic, software-stacked, bracketed DNG. It's not raw. Super raw is not raw. Expert raw is not raw. And pro raw is not raw. They're all DNG containers for bracketed and stacked photos. So that you just have more information to edit with, but it's not a raw. Raw means you have not touched any of the data that comes directly off the sensor. Super raw is a stack of photos that have been squished together and repackaged in that container. Expert Raw is the same, Pro Raw is the same, but I think Vivo got there first. I think Vivo demonstrated the, the benefits of that to a degree that every other company has had to catch up to. Really, really, really like Super Raw on the X70 Pro Plus. It's monster performance. And now it's the brightest mode on the X90. It shoots so fast. It's like a you, you hold still for like less than three seconds in almost zero light conditions, and it turns that dark. Like I can barely see details with the human eye, and it turns it into daylight. <laughs> it is astounding, and you can start your editing from. Uh, you know, it does a really good job of scrubbing out the noise, kind of stacking all of that, bringing up all of the shadow detail, highlighting and accenting all of these little individual details. It kind of applies some of the structure for you. It's not sharpened as much as there's like a structure filter applied. It's insane. I, I mean, again, it's like magic. Something that you would have to like do a five second or a 10 second exposure on a standalone mirrorless camera on a tripod the Vivo can do in three seconds handheld. And it turns out brighter and cleaner than if you were trying to bracket. Like if I did a seven shot bracket, so the camera, you set it up on a tripod and I have to use a remote shutter so I don't shake the camera. And then it takes seven photos at different exposure levels. Then I have to take those photos and bring them to a computer and put them in Affinity or Photoshop or Lightroom and squish all those photos together. The Vivo just does in three seconds handheld. <laughs> I just I mean if you're if you're not impressed by stuff like that then you're not really into photography. You can, you can be a techie and not care about that kind of stuff, but you're you're not into photography if you don't think something like that is just mind-breakingly cool. 
So the cranky side of this conversation was shared on the Patreon, uh, the miseducation of smartphone camera nerds, and sharing even more photos from the uh, from the X90 Pro, where it's just incredible, incredible performance. Like a photo of Lex running in near blackout darkness, and I, I turned it into this like crunchy black and white photo. I mean, it's just, it's just incredible stuff. I really, really really need to to check this out. Oh, yeah, Sore Hunter. This is exactly it. Uh, best of what Juan is saying is that this is easier to get good photos inside the house, restaurant, bar at night without camera shake for those quick snapshots. Like, Apple and Samsung are playing catch-up bad. <laughs> Um, Brian Billings, I, I don't know. It, it depends on how you nail your macro shots. So the S23 Ultra, the Note 23, uh, should win for macro and close focusing versus the Vivo X80 Pro, if that matters to anyone. So it depends on how you take your macro. If you take your macro shots from ultra-wide cameras, then they're about the same. If you try to take your macro from the telephoto, you aren't. There is no telephoto that takes macro shots. That does not exist. People keep missing that. It says I'm doing five times zoom. It must be shooting from the telephoto sensor. No telephoto sensor can close focus like that. So what it's doing is it's switching you to the main camera sensor or it's switching you to the ultra wide. And you're just, you're zooming in like it's five times zoom, but it's just software cropping from the main sensor. Um, I've been trying to revive my Flickr account. And uh, this is from the Xiaomi 12S Ultra. Let me just get into my photo stream here real quick. And I can, I can show you from the Xiaomi 12S Ultra using that one inch camera sensor. This is a... This is a two times zoom from the main sensor. So this is not the ultra wide and this is not um, a telephoto sensor. This is from the main camera. Um, this is from the one inch sensor. And I got this really patient butterfly um, where you can see the mosaic of its eyes. You can see the depth of field is already falling out of focus on its antenna. You can see the incredible clarity of the kind of dusty, uh, fuzzy structure of its body and the way that its legs kind of partition. And that sort of, I don't know what that tongue uh, appendage is called on a butterfly, how it sips nectar, is perfectly coiled. I don't know that a galaxy is going to get better <laughs> for taking a macro shot if you're already zoom cropping. But where you have an advantage on this one inch type sensor is you have much larger pixels to play with for even better fine detail and fine clarity. This at a two time zoom looks better than most of the last generation photos that I've taken at full resolution because it's still using better pixel level detail than what we can get from a smaller sensor. So this, again, it, it's always going to be kind of a pro and con. I wish it would let me scroll, zoom in even more on Flickr. I wonder why it doesn't. Do I have... No, it's just going to kind of keep me floating right there. 
Um, you can go to my Flickr and you can catch it. Catch that. It's uh, what? What is this called? Butterfly posing for me, shot from the Xiaomi 12s Ultra. It's it's incredible. I'm I'm that good of a photographer. <laughs> <sighs> probosis is that how you pronounce that Pro- probosis Pro- probosis i i don't because it's like nose but also like tongue i don't know um but farhan i completely agree the next stage is going to be getting a variable aperture because you really need to control light on a one inch sensor um, from RicoMan17, what's your favorite phone for video in your opinion? It depends on what you're shooting. There is no best. There isn't. So just immediately stop ranking phones and cameras as a sliding scale. Like this phone's a 73 and this phone's an 84. So this phone must be better. Um, if you're shooting action, Sony, go to the smaller sensor Get yourself the incredible autofocus on a Sony and also step up to 4K at 120 frames per second. 4K 120 is astounding, especially if you want to try and capture fast action and then fluidly like go into slow motion and then right back without any resolution loss. 4K 120, monster feature. If you're trying to shoot something a bit more cinematic or something a bit more documentary, especially like Cinema Verite, um, go to the one-inch sensors. So a Xiaomi 12S Ultra, the rumored Xiaomi 13 Pro, I think, is going to have that same sensor, and then the Vivo X90. Like, you've got different applications for video. Um, If you want the better depth of field and you don't want to worry that sometimes a portrait mode can kind of miss focus... Like, you, you, you get software blurring, but then if they move too much or if your, your subject kind of falls out, uh, the, the illusion is destroyed. Um, even on the best of what Apple can kind of show us of their portrait mode video is highly controlled, shot on sound stages, perfect lighting, and in a very limited, narrow range of movements from the subject to highlight specifically what portrait mode does well, you're not going to get those conditions in real-world shooting. So I would say go for the natural depth of field of a larger sensor where it's already automatically going to look a little more cinematic just from that lens advantage, and you get better video quality that way. So it really depends on what you're trying to accomplish. Um, I would also say the Axon 4D Ultra gets a little bit of a nudge there too, because it's one of the few phones like Sony that matches that 4K 120. <clears throat> it's really good. Oh, for Ricoman 17, mainly for interviews and B-roll, then go larger sensor. Yeah, if you want a more documentarian look, documentary look, <laughs> documentarian? If you want a more documentary look, go with the one-inch sensor, shoot 4K 24, 4K 30, 4K 60, whatever it is that you're shooting in there. Um, And you will have a more camera-like depth of field to play with, and you don't have to worry about autofocus misfiring. I would absolutely go, and especially if you can, like, nab a Xiaomi 12S Ultra on a sale and just use that as, like, a camera camera. Like, it's pretty cheap. (laughs) All right, so how about we knock out news real quick? (laughs) 
did an hour on housekeeping. And I didn't even tell you the other stuff that I did. All the links and housekeeping stuff will be on this week's show notes, somegadgetguy.com. I just really needed to talk about cameras. And again, it, it really irks me when we've got techies who should know better, who are saying, oh, but no, it's, it's the megapixels mean nothing. It means nothing. You're going to push a shutter button, you're going to get a 12 megapixel image. And if you set it up on a tripod and you take a 200 megapixel image, I seriously doubt you're really getting 200 megapixels of clarity out of the lens of a smartphone camera. But I digress again. All right, so um, these links highlighting quick run because I do want to get us over to the gadget block and talk a little bit about some of Apple's shenanigans and then also this new Razor Edge. So these are stories I just want you to keep an eye on. We're following up on some of these news articles. And this first one, we got a little bit of a chatter on the Discord just because it was kind of interesting to see a headline like this coming from a publication that is usually very business-centric at the expense of employees. So this came by way of Fortune.com, written up by Gleb Sipersky, I believe is how you pronounce Gleb's name. The return to the office could be the real reason for the slump in productivity. Here's the data to prove it. In an article that could also have been titled and water is wet, we're looking at corporations kind of tracking employee productivity. And it really, this is really interesting. I don't know that anyone would have, would have predicted this. I'm about to blow everyone's mind here, right? Your mind is about to be exploded. When you force work from home employees back into the office for no other reason than you want to sit there and babysit them in the office and they don't really need to be there, their productivity plummets. There was no way for us to know that this would be the potential outcome of forcing employees back into the office. There was no way to know. We had to do it because reasons and middle managers needed to justify their positions in these mega corporations, but we really thought that the collaborative atmosphere and the free snacks in the break room would have made for a corporate culture that was more collaborative and invigorating. But instead, making people commute, wasting money on childcare, wasting money on transportation costs to go into a cubicle to then jump on Zoom calls that they could have done from their living room, seems to negatively impact performance. Shocking. Who could have predicted that that would be the outcome? It is so apparent. Fortune.com. <laughs> I feel like we can pretty safely say this is just a soft layoff for these corporations that are really forcing this. They want to show their shareholders that they can trim costs. They know that a certain percentage of their labor force is just going to leave. It looks better than if they do layoffs because you get a lot of negative attention for doing layoffs. That's all this is. Anytime a company is forcing their staff to like go back into the office, they're trying to reinforce their investment in, uh, um, in owning property. Uh, and then they're also trying to cull some of their labor force without taking the hit. Um, oh, and El Jefe Reviews, subscribed to Tier 1. Uh, thank you so much for, for supporting the stream, man. I really appreciate it. So, yeah, uh, 
there's no point going to HR. There's no point like complaining to your, your company or your corporation. If they've said, hey, you have to be back in the office, it's because they want a certain number of their employees to leave. That's it. That looks better for shareholders. Line goes up. Profitability looks a little bit better. It, it's all a game of people's lives to make shareholders feel better about their investments instead of just being upfront with the ebb and flow of the market. That's what this is. And when we do look at performance data, it just confirms what we were all saying, but that doesn't matter. So there you go. (laughs) Okay. So, uh, oh, hold on. I want to get this one from ER 1980. A certain politician tried to push the return to office approximately a year ago here in the UK, mainly because his so-called buddies were losing out on rental income. Says it all really. Uh, yeah, I feel like real estate is a major driving factor in keeping the value of property up. You have to demonstrate that it's necessary, but to a point, you're also like forcing people back in the office is also additional costs on operating that real estate. So it's all just, it's all just a shell game at this point of moving money around to make it look better for investors to feel good. The market has nothing to do with actual performance. You know, like this, especially the stock market has nothing to do with the actual output of profit and costs from a company. It's all the perception of it's all an illusion. Uh, do we feel good about what Google is doing as they've made more money than they've ever made in the history of the company? No, we don't. Stock goes down. <laughs> And it has nothing to do. It happens to Apple all the time. The most profitable company in the history of tech. And they're still like, oh, their stock took a 3% dip. How? Because they sold too many iPhones? Shut up. (laughs) Simon says, no, Juan mentioned property. And that does feel like how they view us. (laughs) Yeah, a little bit. Um, another quick story, just to, again, we're, we're watching the transition happen right now. Um, I can't pronounce her name. I feel so bad. YouTube CEO, Susan Wojcicki, Wojcicki, I can't pronounce, I don't know. W-O-J-C-I-C-K-I. I think it's Wojcicki. Um, from the few times I can remember her introducing herself, I'm probably way off. Uh, This is from CNBC, written up by Jennifer Elias. Uh, YouTube CEO Susan Wojcicki says she's stepping down. Um, Quote, today, after nearly 25 years here, I've decided to step back from my role as the head of YouTube and start a new chapter focused on my family, health, and personal projects I'm passionate about. Which means she got forced out of YouTube. (laughs) It is like corporate speak to, to a T that, Alphabet, uh, the 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 top tier of Alphabet was not happy with YouTube's performance, so they have sort of kind of directed her into stepping down. Uh, the person who's going to be replacing her has also been working on the YouTube team for like fifteen years. 
Uh, he's he's the individual who was responsible for getting rid of the thumbs down, the down vote button, and also I think has started implementing a more aggressive uh, like comment moderation policy that we'll have to see if that really plays out in any significant way. So be on the lookout for more creator burnout because <laughs> the people at the head of YouTube, um, I think, are struggling with some of the audience loss that they see from other services like TikTok. And instead of trying to address it directly, they're just trying to copy TikTok and go even more algorithm focused. And that's a bummer because that's really not the problem with YouTube. The problem with YouTube is uh, a, a bit a bit deeper than that. But why really try to examine that when you can just try to copy your competitors? So, yeah. <laughs> Copycat, let's just call her Susan. I, I'm trying to be respectful of the position because she has been running YouTube. She is a CEO and I feel deserves the correct uh, pronunciation of her last name. Um, it's it's Thexy Pat. My understanding is that Susan caused a lot of heartache for YouTube content creators. Sort of a corporate policy in total at YouTube has created a lot of issues in ire with YouTube uh, content creators. And again, she's the CEO of YouTube, so the buck stops with her, except she's also under the alphabet umbrella, so it's hard to kind of pick where did the line really stop or with the decision-making process of what should be going on at YouTube. Yeah, Raymond, if YouTube keeps killing beta projects, that's Google's problem. I, I feel like there's a part of that where it's not entirely Susan's fault, um, but she's the one who has to kind of take the brunt of the public examination. Another really dumb thing happening in social media right now, uh, moving right along, at thehackernews.com, and it is thehackernews.com, not some hacker news or... A bit of Hacker News. It's thehackernews.com, written up by Ravi Lakshmanan. I've mispronounced your name too, Ravi. Ravi, Ravi, and I apologize. Twitter limits SMS-based two-factor authentication to blue subscribers only. So I really need to highlight this. Imagine that you grossly overpaid for Twitter and that you raised $40 billion of mostly or significantly other people's money to go and buy your own social media network, grossly overvalued for what Twitter should actually be valued at. And then you called like 70% of the workforce and major functions on Twitter operate inconsistently at best. And then you tried to come up with profit generating schemes like verification badges, which now Meta is going to be copying too. That's another story that's breaking that I don't really feel we need to dig into too much. And then you're looking at all of your expenses and you go, hey, we're trying to maintain account security for the people who use our product, but these SMS charges are killing us. They're not making enough money to cover the costs of text messages to do two-factor authentication, so they're paywalling text messages. That is a really bad look for your social media service. We can't afford text messaging. You know when you do that and you get those warnings on the website, SMS charges may apply if you do like two-factor authentication? 
you might get a higher bill from your cell phone carrier if we send you a text message to give you the code to log into your account. I think many of us confront the 10 cents <laughs> that we need when we get those warnings. Twitter apparently is so desperate to find additional cuts and costs and to find other incentives to monetize their 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 monthly subscription fee that they're going to paywall. So if you log into your Twitter account now, you get a warning like, hey, in March, your two-factor is going away, and here are some simple, simple steps that you can take to uh, sort that out. And it's hilarious. It's hilarious that the least secure method of two-factor authentication is now going to be a paid service on their verification subscription plan. This has to be <laughs> one of the worst policy changes we've seen. Um, yeah, that's pretty bad. That's, that's, that's pretty rough. Um, I do want to circle back real quick to the story about YouTube, because this is I think this is a fair point from El Jefe Reviews. Overall, her tenure at YouTube will be seen as a net positive, especially with the role she played in creating the YouTube Partner Program and enabling thousands of creators to earn real cash from their content. And I think that's fair. I started at YouTube before there was a direct um, revenue share on the service. And it did change, like how you viewed YouTube as a content distribution platform when that was enacted. So I think that's totally fair. I think uh, we should point to that. I think it's been more recently in how algorithmically driven platforms like YouTube and Facebook have become that my engagement with YouTube has plummeted and my experiences as a creator have been ratcheted. And it is extremely frustrating trying to keep pace with a distribution schedule that appeases the algorithm. And that's why so many of us are hitting burnout. And I can't say that that's a direct result of her initiatives. I think ultimately she did speak for content creators on the platform. And I think she was still guided by the upper tier of alphabet management. We need these products and services in place and you need to cut these costs and you need to get these humans out of the equation. So do what you can. And unfortunately, that's a punitive um, reaction to actual content creators on the ground. <laughs> Jman150. No, we know that's not it. Hopefully, this fixes the massive issues like being copyrighted for no reason at all and bots, just to name a few. <laughs> no, that's not going to change anything at YouTube. Um, and lastly, because I just needed something uh, bright and shiny in my news block. Uh, I caught this one on Engadget, and it just kind of put a smile on my face, so I just wanted to share. Um, this is just nice. I like nice. Nice is good. I needed some nice in my week. Viz Media makes Sailor Moon and other anime classics available for free on YouTube. Uh, the company also uploaded the Japanese audio versions of Death Note, Naruto, Naruto and Hunter, uh, Hunter x Hunter. I know it's probably not Hunter x Hunter, but that's not a show that I watched. I did watch Sailor Moon and I did watch Death Note. Um, but yes, so they're going to be uh, ad supported, but you can stream them for free. Uh, Moon Crystal, Inuasha, in uh, there are a couple other shows in there too. But again, this is just a brief little write up on Engadget. I, I just liked that. I like seeing companies say, hey, 
you know, we've got this property and it's not really living in a profitable way on any other catalog or any other streaming site. Let's just put it up on YouTube and then we'll get some ad revenue from it. We'll at least make some money for having owned this piece of a catalog. Um, was it uh, the Canadian Broadcast Corporation had a bunch of shows? Like, I think even old episodes of Degrassi were available on YouTube for a while. And you're like, hey, we're not, we're not actively using this part of the catalog and we have the rights to distribute this stuff. YouTube ad revenue is better than no ad revenue. And you could put up, uh, what was it? It was Slings and Arrows, charming little Canadian show about a theater troupe trying to put on Shakespeare. And um, I think only the first season, they, they made three seasons of the show. It is delightful. Um, it, it is, it is, if you were ever a theater nerd or appreciated live performance at all, it, 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 it hits really close to home just how adorable and how egocentric these stage performers are and it's just a lovely comedic little romp and i think they had the first season up i don't think they put all three up but again that that gets you hooked oh the first season of the show was so good now i want to see if i can find seasons two and three stuff like that is just phenomenal so when i see something like hey sailor moon is going to be on youtube do you know what i'm going to do i'm going to throw sailor moon up on a web browser on the side while i'm writing my scripts and editing some of my other videos and stuff because that's awesome and, and I love that it's a free, easy, and accessible way to get this content, especially as we're watching services like Netflix really struggle <laughs> with their, um, their distribution. Yeah, Jeff, I mean, this is like, just tell me, it's just not like a really cute smile on your face. Jeff says, woohoo, free Sailor Moon. She wasn't imprisoned. We're not saying free Sailor Moon. We're saying it's free Sailor Moon. The, the distinction uh, wasn't necessary. <laughs> oh, Muppinish. Hey, that's awesome. Muppinish says, hey, I have Flickr on my PS Vita. Soon I'll be able to look at your photos that way. Great, man. <laughs> I'll take any Flickr views from any older gaming platforms that you want to share. So uh, we're, we're going to take a, a, a quick pivot here. That was the news block. Um, we, we do have a couple of Apple stories that we're going to talk about here real quick, too. I just want to quickly highlight the subreddit, uh, reddit.com slash r slash glowing rectangles. Every podcast has a subreddit. My podcast is no exception. My subreddit is based on trying to help popularize content that we feel, as an audience, that we feel deserves more attention. Um, last couple of weeks, my, my posts have not been scoring very well. I mean, I even put out five one plus 11 videos and I don't think any of them cracked. No, I think one of them cracked the top five when they went live. So I, I feel really, really hurt. I mean, just like, hey man, this is my subreddit. And if I'm like Elon Musk on Twitter, I should have an algorithm that makes my content on my subreddit more popular. But that doesn't exist on reddit.com slash r slash glowing rectangles. But this week... Our conversation on the podcast last week made it to the top. So last week, I had like a 30 or 40 minute um, diatribe on this study that came out about Chinese phones, Oppo, Realme, and Xiaomi phones that are stealing your data. And all of the really lazy hack um, articles that were coming out where... It was just that really obnoxious Fox News open-ended question. Are OnePlus phones stealing your data? 
Except that the study explains what was happening. So if you'd read the study, and, and it wasn't like a really difficult study to read, like in the introduction and the conclusion, they spell out, no, the global ROMs of these phones are fine. So I took a chunk of that. I didn't take the entire like 40 minutes of me rambling, but I took a chunk of that, cut it up, and I made it a, a standalone video. And now that was the top voted uh, post on reddit.com slash r slash glowing rectangles. Um, rounding out the, uh, the top three, we've got Simply Your Device, taking a look at Carl Pay of Nothing, reviewing the OnePlus 11. And then this one shot up rapidly. This was posted yesterday. And it's the third place for the week. Do not buy the S23 Ultra for gaming. Uh, the Note 23's performance struggles under sustained load, especially compared to Vivo flagships. So this is uh, the uh, this is for C4E Tech, their English channel. Um, uh, just kind of checking out the S23 Ultra and comparing some of the gaming performance against other phones. This vibes with like a Golden Reviewer took a look at the the Note 23, and I loved the Golden Reviewer's video title. It was like, this is the best Galaxy for gaming. This is the worst performing version of the Snapdragon 8 Gen 2, but that still means it's the best Galaxy phone for gaming. With all of their 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 big pitches, oh, Samsung, we, uh, we overclocked this Qualcomm SoC. Doesn't help. <laughs> That's not what makes performance better. You didn't make performance better. You gave us another marketing metric that looks more impressive. You have Snapdragon for Samsung in your phone, and it's actually worse <laughs> than regular Snapdragon. And especially if you've been playing on phones like an iQ11 with monster mode, boy, howdy, is that phone a beast. So uh, a couple other, um, there was a trip down memory lane, someone saying like in, in uh, what, what, what was this? This was the project, uh, taking a look at your smartphone is probably more powerful than 40% of desktop computers. I, mean, I want to say this video is like eight years or six years old. Um, Ted, I don't know if Ted's in the chat right now. Ted shared this on the subreddit and it's just hilarious to see all the comments like, no, uh Phones aren't as powerful as computers because phones do phone things and computers do computer things. And in, in a couple years, uh, you'll see that phones just continue to not do computer things and we need to buy more computer to do computer things. And they're all wrong. Like, it's hilarious seeing how way off the pulse uh, techies were like six years ago. So it's pretty great. Hey, I'll have a reviews. Bang, bang, Vivo gang. I'm just telling you, man, right now, if you're not paying attention to the international market, you are missing some phenomenal phones. It's pretty great. Oh, <laughs> my nerd voice, it's getting more and more insulting, isn't it? Uh, I think Jeff's kind of calling me out on that a little bit. But yeah, so we had a great rundown. Um, there were IQ11 uh, commentaries. We did post a lot of news this week on the subreddit, like the YouTube CEO stepping down. That was one of the top 10 uh, highest voted. And then also um, another follow-up from Luis Rossman. This was in the seventh, seventh place or eighth place. Samsung trying to monopolize the display industry. It's worse than I thought. I was wrong about Samsung. Uh, he's just been doing a lot of follow-ups on Samsung's attempts at breaking right-to-repair initiatives. So technically, we'll have right-to-repair. We'll be able to repair our gadgets, but Samsung will have... 
IP disputes with certain types of manufacturing techniques like organic light emitting diode displays. And if a company can't prove that they're not infringing on some type of Samsung patent, and they have to go through the entire legal process of proving in court against Samsung Electronics, then our government will block shipments of parts to the United States. So yes, technically we'll have right to repair. You just won't be able to get access to any parts unless you buy them directly from Samsung, where then Samsung can monopolize and control the display market and make it profoundly uh, uh, too expensive to repair your gas. Well, you know, it's going to cost like $600 to replace that screen. What if you just, you know, bought a $700 phone instead? And that's a really ugly look. Again, I don't feel like Samsung has earned their position as market leader. They have bought it through advertising, and now they're playing games like this where they're going to make it more and more difficult to find competition or to repair your products. That only helps Samsung's bottom line, but that doesn't mean to me that this corporation is really delivering the best product, the best services at the best price for their customers. They're trying to ratchet the market and bully the market, and that to me is not a market leader. I feel like my thoughts have been pretty much in line with Rossman over here for some of this repair conversation. If you want something that's a little less hotly hosted, because, you know, Luis Rossman, he gets kind of spiky about some of this stuff. You can also check out the wonderful video produced by Hugh Jeffries about the same topic, of how Samsung is trying to destroy the repair industry. And Hugh Jeffries is a very measured and very consistent uh, commentator on this type of topic. And if you don't trust me and you don't trust Luis Rossman... I would put Hugh Jeffries and iFixit up at that tier of measured and calm and articulate that you could also maybe trust that too. <laughs> but basically, supporting Samsung at this point in any way, shape, or form is dicey if you care about the global market and the industry for repair in the United States. I'm not saying you shouldn't. I'm just saying understand that your support of Samsung comes with this type of business strategy and policy as they aren't really getting the sales numbers that they want for Galaxy S phones. Just a quick interjection here, folks. I love highlighting good work and talented people, producers and writers who deserve more attention. So here's a quick word from someone making cool stuff on the internet, and I hope you check out what they have to offer. Hey, everyone, this is Zach of Zach Talks Tech. If you're looking to make sense of the tech that you love, if you're looking for an un- filtered opinion someone who's just straight to the gun gets right to it no nonsense come on over to zach talks tech i stream three days a week monday wednesday friday at 9 15 p.m eastern and then i cut up clips of that show and i throw them out there for you on tuesdays and thursdays but if you want to be part of the live show check it out monday wednesday Fridays at 9.15 p.m. Eastern. Check it out, Zach Talks Tech on YouTube. That's Z-A-K-T-A-L-K-S-T-E-C-H. Or as they, they call it up here in Canada, it could also be Zed. <laughs> Z-A-K-T-A-L-K-S-T-E-C-H. Check them out on all the socials. We'll see you there. Oh, I did not. J-Man150, did you see Luis Rossman's video on Unbox Therapy he posted like today? I'll, I'll watch it later. I'm not going to... I, I, I'm not going to spend too much time. If it's if it's another like YouTuber commenting on drama between other YouTubers, that kind of stuff just exhausts me because it's not about the tech. I don't care about 
again, the few times that I've engaged in direct confrontation with other tech reviewers and YouTube channels has only brought grief. It's only sucked. When I've called out larger channels or when I've highlighted hypocrisy and inconsistency in some of their review styles or when I've outright misrepresentation of companies um, from some of these YouTubers, all that does is fuel a drama industry. And I don't want to do a drama industry. I want to talk about how cool tech does cool stuff. So I'll, I'll probably watch it, but that's not going to be high on my list of things to kind of check out. Um, <clears throat> let me get this out of the way. Oh, J-Man 150, this is rough. Did you hear there was another earthquake in Turkey, apparently? Uh, 6.4. Oh, that's tough. Um, I know for last week's show I didn't bring it up, but I left the links on the show notes, and I'll do that again this week. Find organizations, please, if you can. This is another week of, hey, I really appreciate the support on this YouTube channel, on, on this Twitch stream, on my blog, somegadgetguy.com. If you have the spare buck, while it would help me out, I'd maybe instead say check out an organization that can get uh, support to the area. If it's Red Crescent, if it's another local charity or another um, emergency healthcare uh, uh, organization, if it's something that you think is reputable, take the buck out of my support and give it to Turkey. And I'll leave the two links that I've been sharing so far, I'll leave them in the show notes for this week's episode too. Um, so I do want to just hi- kind of highlight, these are two critical Apple stories we're just kind of getting to the decision points on both of them. We need to watch them because this is going to have huge implications for how major corporations get to bend the rules on copyright and IP and no one else gets to play by the same rules. If you're a trillion dollar company, nothing you do apparently is illegal. (laughs) So Apple is allowed to do things that no other corporation or startup or tech industry is allowed to do. The first one really galls me. So this was written up by thehill.com by Carl Evers Hillstrom. Apple flexes lobbying power as Apple Watch ban comes before Biden next week. So this was last week and it should be coming to some kind of conclusion in the next couple of days. Apple was accused of stealing the health tech in the Apple Watch from a little startup from the company is, let me find the, the name of the company, AliveCore. AliveCore made these sensors and patented their method of, of health tracking on a wearable like a smartwatch. Apple copied that tech and put it into the Apple Watch and then sold billions of dollars worth of Apple Watches. Like last year, in 2022, I believe Apple revenue on just the Apple Watch was somewhere in the ballpark of $20 billion. AliveCore sued Apple, and that went before the ITC, the U.S. International Trade Commission, and the ITC ruled in AliveCore's favor. They found that Apple was in violation of AliveCore's patents, and Apple is not looking to settle. It would cost them money. They have the money. They could pay to license this technology, but they just don't want to. Because they they would make a little bit less money on Apple Watches if they had to pay to license a tech that they stole. They stole this technology, and the ITC has ruled that they stole this technology and have illegally incorporated this technology into the Apple Watch. So, 
since they're not looking to broker a deal with a live core to properly license this patent, uh, that means they're going to be in violation of IP law and regulations. And that should mean that there's a ban on selling the Apple Watch. Like, that's easy. That makes sense to me. You should not be allowed to continue profiting on technology that you have not paid for. So instead of, you know, properly licensing this technology, Apple is aggressively lobbying politicians in Washington, D.C. Now, I really need to put these numbers in perspective. Uh, Apple has, in the past, also gotten other vetoes on ITC rulings by lobbying politicians. I, I believe the last one was in, I want to say it was in 2013 or 2014. <clears throat> it was during the Obama administration. ITC said, you stole this technology from Samsung, but Apple spent a bunch of money yelling at politicians, and then uh, President Obama vetoed the ITC ruling, saying that they, they were going to be blocked. I, might, I think I want to say it was for like some type of iPad tech. Anyway, remember that number. In 2022, we believe, based on some of Apple's disclosures and their um, quarterly profits announcements, we believe that Apple sales were somewhere around $20 billion for the Apple Watch over 2022. Last year was one of the heaviest lobbying years from Apple in Washington, D.C. I want to just throw this out to the chat. How much money do you think, and, and no fair cheating if you were in the Discord when we started talking about this or if you saw my post on Mastodon, how much money do you think Apple spent lobbying Washington, D.C. politicians? Again, just the Apple Watch, roughly $20 billion in revenue. How much do you think they spent influencing American politicians? Someone, uh, someone take a guess. I'm going to take a drink of water here because my voice is getting fuzzy. <laughs> Dave Burns. It's definitely a ham sandwich. <laughs> Oh, Onscon, you, you sweet summer child. Onscon says, in the trillions. <laughs> no one's taking a guess on this. I, this is hilarious. Okay, Apple spent $9 million to lobby DC politicians. $9 million. And something tells me an Apple Watch ban will be very unlikely in the United States. So, with the favor and with the influence that $9 million has brought them, they will continue to sell a product that infringed last year to the tune of $20 billion in revenue. Our government is so cheap to influence. Thousands of dollars of campaign contributions to individual politicians can, can curry favor to the point of supporting billions of dollars of revenue for products that have been ruled as infringing on patent theft. Now, if anyone ever steps on one of Apple's patents... That company <clears throat> is sued into oblivion. 
and Apple lawyers go after them tooth and claw. But when Apple loses in the courts, they spend a couple thousand dollars per politician and they are allowed to break rules that their competitors are not allowed to break. And just like I was complaining about Samsung ravaging the rights of repair industry, if you continue to support Apple as a corporation, I feel that's a little dicey. You are in part supporting Apple's lawyers and Apple's financial contributions to politicians to prevent competition in the marketplace, which will make all of our products worse. It's okay if you like your iPhone, I want you to like your iPhone, but that has to be a part of what you're supporting, what you acknowledge when you give Apple money to enact business strategies like this where they are allowed to steal intellectual property, put it into a product, release it at a scale that only Apple can demonstrate in the market, and then when they're caught, they are allowed to circumvent the rules with their own relationships with politicians. I feel that's pretty gross. <laughs> and all the tech companies are, are engaged in tiers of, of lobbying to try and influence the direction of political... I mean, again, it's because of uh, conservative administrations getting rid of rules that would have prevented this kind of spending. When you start saying money is speech, you're saying big entities with lots of money should be able to bully smaller entities and individuals because they don't have as much money that you can buy your politicians. It's not bribing a politician. It's influencing a politician. You're talking at them with thousands and thousands of dollars of campaign contributions. <laughs> that's not bribing because it's different because we said so. <sighs> So yeah, it's pretty, it's pretty gross. But, you know, when Microsoft does something, we get real antsy about it. But I feel like Microsoft is often like taken to court and, and is forced to sort of behave in ways that Apple has never been called. Like, again, this is a direct ITC ruling that they stole technology and put it into a product and launched that product at Apple scale. And they're like, no, but we just don't want to license it. We don't want to. Whereas, like, Microsoft got sued for including a web browser in, what, was it Windows 2000 or Windows 98? And they're like, oh, no, we can't have that. And you're like, okay, I guess that's justice or something. Whereas there's this little startup, AliveCore, is now basically wrecked. The startup that actually made this technology that Apple was able to copy now has no recourse. They are not going to be able to plead their case in front of politicians to the same degree because they can't donate thousands and thousands and thousands of dollars to every politician. So let's get this out of the way here. And then just as one other quick follow-up, because this is a continuingly evolving story. Um, I would like you to read this because the Wall Street Journal actually does have a pretty decent write-up on it. I'm not going to spend too much time. Uh, written up by Aaron Tilly, Dave Michaels, and Keech Hagee. Uh, U.S. escalates Apple probe looks to involve antitrust chief. Justice Department is adding litigators seeking more data and studying Cantor's possible role in its investigation. So the DOJ started going after Apple for antitrust uh, issues, but they left out 
one of their key investigators who's like, that's like his role is looking into antitrust. And now the DOJ looks like they're going to be escalating some of their investigation to that individual too. So definitely one we should keep an eye out. I am not impressed with Apple's arguments that because Android exists, that they do not exert monopolistic business practices over their customers. I complain about Apple because I feel the people hurt most by Apple's business strategies are Apple customers. I don't use Apple products. This doesn't harm me directly, but when you let Apple off the hook for bad business shenanigans, other companies try to copy it, and that makes everything worse for everyone, but the people most immediately hurt are Apple brand fans, and if we don't rein in the terrible business strategies and anti-consumer policies of a massive trillion-dollar corporation, then we're screwed. (laughs) So that's just another one to keep an eye out. We're going to be seeing a few more headlines soon, I would imagine, on the uh, investigative efforts of the Department of Justice looking into Apple's business practices. So um, that's all the bummer news. Who wants to talk about some mobile gaming? (laughs) having a blast playing games in a mobile fashion on portable electronics. Uh, Who would rather spend the last half hour of this podcast looking at that? (laughs) Because I would much rather spend my time talking about the good stuff. Like, we're talking about camera tech, and I just have been loving this camera tech. Um, Talking about Sailor Moon. I'm going to rewatch all of Sailor Moon if it's on YouTube, and it's just going to be delicious, and I love it. And now... I've been playing a ton of great games on the go. I'm going to take one more little sip of coffee here, and we're going to, we're going to switch over. Uh, yeah, see, Barry, I am here for it. Let's do it. I love it. Ah. So, Sword Hunter, not only more Steam Deck, uh, one of the devices that I've been spending a tremendous amount of time with has been the new Razer Edge 5G. So, this is the Razer Edge 5G... This is a delightful little uh, gaming multimedia tablet. Uh, it definitely has some first-generation teething pains. Uh, but on the whole, we've got a really big, beautiful OLED. And included in the price, this starts at $400. Excuse me. Uh, starts at $400, but it includes a telescoping raise. Uh, uh, special edition Razer Kishi controller. And so what it is, is it is. It's just this teeny little um, multimedia tablet. So it, it's it's kind of in the ballpark of like, oh, you know what? Let me, let me grab it. So sorry, I'm going to jump off camera here for just a second. So someone was mentioning that it looks a lot like a Lumia 1520. And I actually have my Lumia 1520. It's not charged up, though. I just had to run over to the bookcase. And you can kind of see... It's not too far off. Uh, my camera's not going to focus like that. So here, let me, let me move out. You know what we can do instead? Here, I'm going to move to B camera. Let me see if B camera is going to work because it did not work on, on the best of our week. So let me... Ha-ha! B camera! Okay, so we can kind of show this off here. It is very similar. It's very angular, rectangular, um, uh, kind of rounded, molded uh, polycarb on the back. This definitely looks Lumia-inspired, but my 1520 is kind of a perfect um, size reference 
for what the razor the razor edge is going to look like but included in that reasonable price we're getting performance that's near the tier of a snapdragon 888 but it has active cooling so input um, in and out air vents with a fan that circulates over the main soc and so you can run the 888 cores at a higher tier than what a phone would be able to do so we're more in like red magic territory but with much more cooling than what a little phone like a red magic can accomplish so your power performance those kinds of those kinds of numbers i've got games that are playing a lot better at 120 hertz on this than they might be able to on even a snapdragon 8 gen 2 um, and I've been playing through a bunch of phones on a bunch of games on this little mini tablet. And the cool thing is, is that it's also just an Android tablet. There is kind of a, a launcher for your games, but it's super simple. Like even the game mode on a Red Magic is more console-like. This is this is really basic. <laughs> this is really simple. And then you kind of swipe out of it. Oops, you swipe out of it, and then it's just normal Android. So I've really kind of just been living in normal Android as the tablet. But one of the things that I wanted to show off here was just how different the size and screen comparisons are between this is my Steam Deck and then this is the Razer Edge. And the Steam Deck is significantly larger and chunkier where the Razer Edge is even just a hair smaller kind of in the hand and in the profile um, than like a, a Nintendo Switch. I think in part because there's less need for building connectors onto the sides. It just plugs into the USB-C port. I do kind of wish that the Razer Edge had an accessible USB-C port and headphone jack on the tablet because the tablet is totally bare. There's nothing but the, the volume buttons and the power button. And then the USB-C is on the side, kind of like a phone. So it's in phone orientation and the USB-C is down here. So I kind of wish that there was something on this side where you could plug that stuff in because the Kishi has a USB-C charge port and a 3.5 millimeter headphone jack, but this does not have video output. So if you plug the Kishi into a monitor, into a TV, a wearable display, no video comes out. It will only charge the Razer Edge. And that to me is like one of the, the small fundamental design drawbacks of what Razer is doing here. Because I love being able to take my Steam Deck and plug it into one of my laptop docks or into one of uh, my wearable displays. And then I can project this, this gaming experience into another screen or just like out in space in front of me. And I can't do that on the Razer unless I take it out. If I take it out of this, and then I plug something into here, it will do video output, but then I've got to pair it with another controller because I can't use the really cool Kishi controller on this. But you can kind of see, I mean, I, I want to, hold on, let me, let me go back. I want to try and crank, I don't know how well this is going to look on the stream, but if I like kind of juice the brightness on my Steam Deck, like the screen dimensions are pretty close. We just have a narrower aspect ratio on the Razer. So the Steam Deck has a, a taller display, but the Razer has the same width. 
So you have a slightly more widescreen view than on the Steam Deck, but the Steam Deck has a 720p LCD that tops out at 60, 60 hertz, 60 frames per second, whereas the Razer has a 1080p that cranks up to 144 hertz with hard toggles for 30, 60, uh, 90... No, 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 not 30. So 60, 90, 120, and 144. So I just kick it down to 120. I'm not even using the full refresh rate and resolution. Um, not, I'm using the full resolution. I'm not using this, the full refresh rate on the Razer. But this is a brighter, juicier, more colorful OLED than what's on the Steam Deck. So all told, like tech pricing, we're kind of in the correct ballpark where you would want to compare this against um, a, a Switch OLED. Uh, and it does come with more built-in storage. You can add uh, an SD card if you'd like to augment that storage, just like I have a little SD card here on my Steam Deck. And you have different pros and cons. The most expensive version of, of the Razer Edge has 5G. You have to buy it through Verizon. It's Someone please correct me. I think it's $600, whereas the most expensive version of the Steam Deck, you don't have 5G connectivity, you just get more storage and a slightly nicer screen. Uh, not even a nicer screen, you get a nicer glass on the front of the screen, which I immediately ruined by putting a screen protector on my Steam Deck. So we're in an interesting transition point. Razer, I think, is demonstrating a very important step in mobile gaming where platform matters less than the software for that platform, if that makes sense. Uh, Razer and ARM, even a, what, what is now kind of technically a two-generation-old ARM core configuration for what goes into this, is arriving at a price-to-performance that is very attractive. And it can do things that my Steam Deck can't. So especially in some of these games, like I was playing Neon Chrome. It's an old twin-stick shooter. Hold on, let me see if I can just kind of fire it up here. Oh, I don't have... Let me... um. I don't know if that's really going to toggle properly. Uh, let me just get the game going if I can find it. <laughs> um, this plays at a higher frame rate on the Razer Edge than it will. Oh, I should turn on the speakers too because I don't want any potential like demonetizing here. Arcade Twin Stick, I, I, love, um, I love games like this. Are you not going to recognize the controllers now? Oh, no! Where's my controller support? All right, maybe we won't use this. Hold on, let me check another game because I was playing uh, Dustin Neon. Are you not, like, connected? Do I have to... Oh, there it goes. Okay, we'll do this with Dustin Neon. It's still a twin-stick shooter. <laughs> um, but this is playing at higher frame rates than I can play on my Steam Deck. This is a $30 arcade roguelite twin-stick shooter. It's called Dustin Neon. You can get it on Steam. plays great on PCs. Uh, Netflix has the official Android port of this game. And so if you have a Netflix subscription, you can play it for free. Um, it's probably one of the reasons why I'll keep like even just like a basic Netflix subscription because I do actually kind of like their catalog of, of game titles. Um, but this game is phenomenal, plays super liquidy smooth, and it looks great. I mean, this looks better gaming at a higher resolution at a higher frame rate than what I can do on my Steam Deck. So really we're in a situation where we just need the software to come to Android as a platform. 
I feel like performance per watt, we're actually, the advantage actually goes to ARM, but the Steam Deck is more of a proper PC. Like this is an AMD PC in a shell um, that you can kind of carry with you. It's just when I really want to go portable and like ultra portable, my ability to pack this is better than my ability to pack this. So like if I hold up the Steam Deck, you can even just see like how much thicker you need to make a Steam Deck to fit the fan and all the PC guts and the controls and the triggers. So ergonomically, I like holding the Steam Deck better because I am a grown-up with sort of reasonably sized hobbit hands, but I like holding on to something that's got a bit more, uh, sort of a bit more chunk for all of the controls and triggers and stuff. It feels more like holding a real controller. This feels really switch little when you um, pick up the, uh, the Razer Edge and the Kishi controller, but this is so much easier to pack than this because the Steam Deck is real big. And so if I leave, I can kind of throw this into my backpack just like I would have a big phone, <laughs> like a Lumia 1520, and I'm a little less concerned if this takes a few hard knocks on the Kishi controller. This being all fused together, I really want to always put this in a big, chunky case to protect it because there's no way to kind of minimize damage to one part of it. There's no backpack that has a Steam Deck compatible slot. Like, this won't fit in a laptop sleeve. This won't fit in a tablet sleeve. It has to live in its own case when I'm out and about. So I've just been really digging this. Um, it, it's, a, it's a really fun twist on multimedia. So it's easier to stream content, to watch movies on something like this. The Steam Deck does a pretty good job, um, like, streaming content. If you want to go into the desktop mode, fire up Netflix... It works pretty well, and you can plug it into another TV if you want to do that too. This is just does this does the same thing, but it does it better. It's easier to do that kind of Androidy stuff. And if I wanted to, I guess I could put other productivity software on there too. It's just I kind of like this being a more streamlined entertainment device to go along with a phone. And I think that's kind of the big the big point is like I was recently showing off like a Poco, right? I have no idea where I put that Poco. Um, hold on one second. Here it is. So this phone is 300 euro. The base model Wi-Fi version of the Razer Edge is like $400. So, I mean, just kind of playing fast and loose with exchange rates and stuff. Let's just say, all told, you were in for about $800 for a good phone with a good camera and very good performance and a dedicated portable gaming device. And that's a pretty good buy. That's a pretty good buy if it's $400 for a base model Steam Deck and a phone. And I think it's a pretty good buy if it's, you know, $400 for a gaming uh, Android multimedia tablet. Like, I feel like those entertainment dollars are well spent in either direction. You can step up to a much more expensive phone that is demonstrably more powerful and has better cameras and better processing and can play games better than the inexpensive phone. And that's great. But someone's entertainment dollars might decide that they want to go more modular phone and device for less than the price of one premium expensive phone. And I think that makes for an interesting conversation. I think that's actually kind of fun, kind of carving up the pros and cons and the differences so that you can maximize dollar per entertainment in a way that makes the most sense for your needs. 
So um, here, let me uh, jump out of B camera and we can kind of wrap up the show. If there are any specific questions there. Good job, B camera. That actually worked. I, I still can't figure out what went wrong with trying to screen share from the, uh, from the Razor Edge. <laughs> Hold on. Let me take a drink of water here real quick. I see some really funny comments in the chat. Hold on one sec. Okay. Um, immediately, John Gao, what do you think of the Sony Xperia Stream accessory? I like it a lot. I, I'm worried that it's going to be overly proprietary to one form factor of Sony phones. The way that it mounts to that Sony, if Sony changes their design, or if you decide you want to go from like an Xperia 1 to an Xperia Pro, that that accessory is so specifically designed, I worry that it doesn't, it, it won't grow with other Xperia purchases. I like products that can kind of live beyond one phone. And especially for a controller that has a fan on it that can kind of cool your phone. I sort of like the GameSir approach. So this is the GameSir X3. I've shown it on a bunch of streams and stuff. But this won't trigger the Sony features on the Xperia 1. But if you really care, if you really care about sustained performance, instead of just having a fan on the back, this is a Peltier cooler. This is a thermoelectric cooler. And the pad here drops in temperature rapidly. So it's, I would say it's probably about 70 degrees Fahrenheit in my office. And if I plug this in and I run it for about a minute, the pad temperature will drop 30 degrees like, like that. And so then you have this cold pad on the back of your phone to help extract heat from any type of internal thermals. So I kind of like that solution better because this will work with a lot more devices. It's built to be compatible with a number of different phones. Um, and it still brings the benefit of something like active cooling to a phone. So as much as I love phones like the Red Magic, if you want better sustained performance and you want to cool that phone down, you don't need to buy a gaming phone. You could go with a cooling controller instead. <laughs> I still haven't found a solution to this, so Dave Burns, but can it play Fallout 4? And Dave Burns is, of course, uh, referencing someone on my comments, uh, just criticizing Android gaming. I did a showdown between a Red Magic phone and my Steam Deck, and they were like, no, -uh. the, the, the Steam Deck is obviously superior because it's a more powerful computer, and you can tell because uh, you can't play Fallout 4 on an Android phone. And you're like, that has nothing to do with the performance. That is exactly what we're talking about, getting developers to bring games to Android. Because I can play Alien Isolation at a better performance per watt on a Red Magic. And that Red Magic was a thirsty phone. That fan and the 8 Gen 1, that ran hot. And it was still a better performance per watt than playing it on my Steam Deck. Alien Isolation, it's the same game. It's not like Alien Blackout, which was Five Nights at Freddy's, but for the Alien universe. This was the tr full PC build ported over. Alien Isolation is awesome. Plays great on the Red Magic. Plays great on the Steam Deck. I can play it for longer on the Red Magic than I can play it on the Steam Deck. Um, <laughs> Dave Burns, I am shocked that you are playing a twin-stick shooter, Juan. Yeah, it's pretty great. <laughs> 
Gormlord, please fix the connection. It looks crooked. In fact, the next time, Gormlord, that I go to Bcam, I'm gonna I'm gonna make it even more diagonal. Not only am I not gonna fix it, I'm going to remember you, and I'm gonna make it more diagonal on, on this stream. It's just the way we got to do it. I uh, I I. This is a practical setup that I can do quickly, not let me manicure a live stream setup that looks like it was shot by an expensive studio. So now I need to make it worse. Everyone, Gormlord, uh, is the reason why my stream is going to look even worse next week. I might, like, rotate everything 90 degrees so that you all have to, like, look like this at the stream. It's going to be awesome. I love it. (laughs) So, Farhan, this is incorrect. I do want to like the Razer Edge, but I still can't help but think you can get the normal Kishi controller and use it on any phone. Um, there are going to be pros and cons. A regular phone with a Kishi controller is going to be great. That is going to be great gaming performance. And I just showed off the GameSir X3. It's going to be great. But on a phone, your sustained performance is not going to be as good. So even a Snapdragon 8 Gen 2 with much better power efficiency than the Snapdragon 8 Gen 1, you're going to start getting into your game, and the phone's going to start running warm, and after about 20 minutes of gameplay, you're going to settle into a frame rate that's much lower than where you started. An 8 Gen 2 is more powerful than what's in the Razer Edge, but that comes with at least, right now, I don't know that you can get an 8 Gen 2 for under $600. Okay, so if your current phone is doing fine and you don't want to spend 600 or more dollars on better gaming performance to to upgrade your phone, you could go to a dedicated gaming platform. You could get a Nintendo Switch, you could get a Steam Deck, you could get a Razer's Edge. When you compare the performance on the Razer Edge, it is much more like picking up a Red Magic, but better. There's more room, there's more space, there's a larger screen, there's a bigger body cavity, and you have a bigger fan moving air through the device to maintain a higher sustained graphics performance than what a traditional sealed phone can deliver. So it really just matters to you how much you play games. If everything that I've just said doesn't matter to you because you only play games in like five-minute bursts and you don't play graphically demanding games, I would also say there's no point in buying like a $600 phone or more, or or more expensive phone. If you really care about maximizing your gameplay, a phone could do really well, or you could look at a standalone dedicated device to game on that won't tank your phone's battery. You have to put your phone through more charge-discharge cycles. Maybe that's not good. Or maybe your phone does have charge separation, which is one of the features that's missing. That, that to me, is one of the critical features that is missing from the Razer Edge. It needs some type of charge protection or charge separation that I can't find. I don't think it exists on the Razer Edge. Um, Because, again, you game on a Steam Deck... There's a certain point where it, like, it's not going to keep trying to charge, discharge your battery. Or, or on a Red Magic, or on a Sony, it's the same thing. You fire up a game, and then you're like, okay, well, it's just going to kind of hover at about the same battery capacity, the same battery charge. It needs that. Um, the Razer Edge, I think, really does need that. So I, I think it's all pros and cons. 
it depends on how important gaming is to you. It depends on how much you want to spend on a nicer phone. And it depends on where you want to put your entertainment dollars. I think there's this huge spectrum. I think for a lot of households, an iPad makes a lot of sense. It's a general purpose computing tablet that can do some laptopy things. It can do some media streaming things. And it can do some gaming things. And it's at a reasonable price for sort of covering all of those different use cases, even if it's not the best in any one category. That's where a family might choose to put their entertainment dollars. But if gaming is a primary activity and you're spending money on gaming, I would say maybe start looking, instead of a premium tier phone, maybe start looking at a good mid-ranger phone. Get yourself a Pixel 6a and a Steam Deck. Get yourself a Poco X5 and a Razer Edge. That combination is going to be roughly the same price as a premium tier phone, but will tackle different duties and will have sort of a, a firewall between what's communication and social media and camera and what's entertainment and media streaming and gaming. And that's going to make sense for a different kind of consumer. Oh, Onscon. Yeah, Onscon asked, does it have charge separation? And I can't find if it does. <laughs> I don't I don't think it does. Oh, Dave Burns, does it have Nova pre-installed? Is that what you were you asking that? Does it come with Nova, Nova Launcher pre-installed? I don't think it does. I think it's just like Android 12 AOSP. Um it's pretty basic in there. There's not a lot and the the skin that they use for their console mode is just a very basic launcher for tapping a game icon and playing a game. And take another sip of water here. Oh, Grounded Tech spoiling me with that 1520. 1520, man, these Lumias, so good. So good, I need to charge that one up again and just kind of clean it out. <laughs> hey, podcast listeners. I work really hard to find mutually beneficial ways to support production on my various distribution platforms. Instead of just running ads on this podcast and hoping they don't annoy you, I want to find products or services that you really will get something out of and that can help fund my production. While I do talk about some of those items in ads throughout this podcast, I've never created one easy-to-view master list of my current partnerships until now. Sorry, I couldn't help myself. If you'd like to help contribute, support production of this podcast and my various videos and reviews, head on over to somegadgetguy.com. At the top, there's going to be a link for support some gadget guy, and you can see what my current partnerships are. At the time this podcast was recorded, in addition to my Patreon, we can hook you up with a $10 voucher for shopping a new OnePlus, save 20% on some one more headphones, Sign you up for Google Fi service, Amazon affiliate links, Audible, or you can grab a Mega Pickle coffee mug of your very own. Mmm, savory, delicious Mega Pickles. Head on over to somegadgetguy.com, support banner on the top right-hand side of my website, and hopefully you find something cool, something you like, while also kicking me a little extra scratch. All right. Let me, let me catch back up with the chat. I got a bunch of other comments in here real quick. Um, so Gormlord, one issue I have with Android games is that if the dev doesn't update it, I lose the ability to play it, and it's something that I'm facing right now. Uh, so let's see. The games I've lost, 
So the uh, the Rockstar games actually need some updates. Bully is playing really flaky on Android 13. So that is definitely a bummer. Um, the main games that I've lost, Implosion. Uh, Implosion was this incredible uh, sort of top-down sci-fi dungeon looter action combat game was so good. And I actually still, it kind of still runs on like Android 9. It was updated at one point and I think they got support back working again for like Android 10, but then it got flaky again and now it just crashes. Like if you're on anything above Android 11, it, it doesn't, it doesn't, it won't even get you to your, uh, to the splash screen, to your startup immediately just bails. I think the developer has kind of given up on it, and that makes me really sad. Uh, the other one that broke my heart was Sentinel. Um, Sentinel 3 and Sentinel 4 are still the best tower defense games that have ever come to mobile, and they're gone. I mean, they're just... They just vanished. So the developer pulled all of that, and and it, it, it's just awful. That, like, you can't even get, like, an APK anymore. I don't even know that the developers... The, the website still exists, and I think you can still get Sentinel-3 on, um, on Steam. Um, but, yeah, the, the games are so out of support, even on PC, that, like, they don't really work anymore. And, again, it's just heartbreaking, because it was absolutely the best, uh, the best version of, uh, of that kind of mobile tower defense strategy kind of game. Just really, 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 really good. So, um, here, hold on, let me get this out of the way. Someone's just being a jerk on YouTube. Again, one of the reasons why I prefer the, the chat be on Twitch is, uh, it's a little bit easier, even through these streaming services, to kind of get in there and, and, uh, stop people from being jerks in the chat. So, so Riot, you're a jerk. And if we never see you again, that's fine. <laughs> So Farhan, just talking about um, <laughs> Dave Burns. Yeah, on Twitch, you at least read my, my insults here. Yeah, because your insults are charming. You know, again, it's, it's like uh, that Simpsons episode where Marge is trying to impress the country club crew and one of the women is upset that maybe she, uh, that Marge didn't get her brand of humor. Uh, <laughs> so I've just been playing a ton, of, a ton of fun games. And one of the things that I'm going to be taking a look at in a video coming hopefully soon to the YouTube channel I might write up some of my experiences on the Patreon first, is uh, when, um, when we look at mobile gaming and when we look at the benefits of portable gaming, game streaming is really becoming a bigger draw faster than I was expecting it to. Caveats, up front, you need to have good data. I feel like that's fair, Right. We all need to acknowledge that game streaming doesn't work unless you've got a pretty decent up and down connection. And for a lot of folks out there, you're looking at the 5G icon on your phone and you know for a fact that 5G icon doesn't mean anything for your ability to do game streaming. I know Razer and Verizon have this partnership. They're really trying to show off this 5G for gaming thing. Doesn't matter. It doesn't matter if you have 5G if in your neighborhood... Those 5G towers aren't connected to good backhaul. The 5G is the same as LTE, which is probably the same as what HSPA Plus was in your neck of the woods. They just put a faster router on the same data connection. But 
That being said, I have decent enough broadband here in, in our home, especially on Wi-Fi, uh, that game streaming kind of works. So I just recently did a video comparing some mini PCs. Uh, oh, let me kind of grab these here. Do I have the... Yeah, this is the Geekom. So this is the, the Geekom Mini Air 11. This is not a powerful PC. Um, it's a, a Nook clone, so it's a tiny little small form factor PC that fits almost in the palm of my hand. I love the Geekom branding, uh, their marketing site, because like they show this next to an iPhone. Look at how much taller the iPhone is than our Mini Air 11. It's a whole computer and something that's not as tall as an iPhone. Um, that's not really how we should compare gadgets, but this is so little, it's really easy to get a mounting plate and bolt it to the back of a monitor and make an iMac on the cheap. It works really well. But their, their entry-level version of this, the Mini Air 11, the, the least expensive version that they sell, is powered by a Celeron. If you're familiar at all with computers in the modern era in 2023, that is not a lot of compute power. We're talking about benchmarking scores that are easily eclipsed by like $200 phones. The Celeron is pretty pokey, but this is handy for having all of the IO, all of the ports, USB uh, A, USB C, headphone jack, Ethernet, display port. If you just want to set up a triple monitor display on the cheap, just for you know uh, web browsing and document work, and a little bit of media streaming, this is a really inexpensive way to do that. And it's good for corporations. Like you want to have a whole bunch of client computers. You would never try to game on a box like this. The little Intel UHD graphics chip. That's the, the GPU that's stapled to the Celeron. Cannot handle Tetris effect at 480p on the lowest possible graphic setting where you can't read the text in the game that it, the graphics are that low. It will play Tetris effect at terrible frame rates. But if you fire up a web browser and you go to Game Pass, and you stream a game over Game Pass, you kind of have a working console. This right here is roughly $200 worth of PC that you can bolt to a monitor, and if you have decent data, you can Game Pass. You can stream over Game Pass, and it works way better than you think it might. So that, to me, becomes one of those... Um, one of those comparison points. This is highly dependent on where you live, what kind of data connectivity you have, what kind of infrastructure you have, and how much you can spend on luxury gadgets. A game console is a luxury gadget. No longer a foregone conclusion, impulse by purchase. I mean, here in our house, we don't even have a PS5. We kept waiting to actually get our hands on a PS5, and Marie and I are kind of good just riding out the PS4 until whatever next, next, next-gen console comes out. I opted for a Steam Deck as a big entertainment purchase for our household, and now my daughter and my wife like being able to play different games on Steam Deck, and my daughter loves the smaller controllers on the Razer Edge. They fit her hands better than they fit my hands. So, sorry, that was a really rambling and, and long-winded way to get into 
One of the things that I also really want to take a look at is if you have the means and you have the infrastructure, I've been game streaming on my Steam Deck more because it's better for the battery life. The graphics aren't being processed by the internals of the Steam Deck. I'm only using the, the screen and the data connection. So if I really want to get invested in a game and I want to do things like plug it into a larger monitor for higher resolution gameplay, offloading the processing gives me hours more playtime. And that is functionally similar to every other device that you can game stream on. If it's a phone, if it's a tablet, if it's an, a hilariously underpowered mini small form factor PC, or if it's a Razer Edge or any other solution. I plug in the controllers and I fire up the Wi-Fi and I can game and get lost and, and be in an immersive entertainment experience for a lot longer than if I'm, rendering, uh, if I'm locally rendering the graphics on my Steam Deck. And that's one of the things I, I kind of want to spend a little bit more time comparing is like even a game like Vampire Survivors can get really chuggy in your end game on a Steam Deck. The Steam Deck is not powerful enough to render all of those little enemies and all of those little weapons that are firing and all of the hit points that you're taking off of those enemies. When you get into like minute 25, it's a slideshow. I'm, at, I'm sometimes down to like five or six frames per second. But I know that my character is powerful enough to just sit there and I don't have to play the game for four minutes, right? But if I stream the game, wouldn't you know it, I'm keeping a higher frame rate, the fans aren't as loud, the battery's not draining as quickly, and the game is played a lot more fluidly. Just pretty nice. <laughs> So, again, I feel like there are all these different little per permutations and the whole notion of, like, do we need to spend four, five, six hundred dollars to put a limited computer under our TV to play a game? We're less impressed with that value proposition than we used to be. I still have a ridiculously powerful mini PC on our TV. We're using that a lot more than on our Steam Deck. I mean, we're using my mini PC, my Nook with a GPU, we're using that a lot more than our PS4. So why would we spend money on a PS5? It, it's, the dollars aren't adding up. It's, it's a rough comparison right now for gaming. Dave Burns still sticking to that Fallout 4 joke, man. That person was so pissy about like, oh, this is like the defining gaming characteristic is whether or not your phone can play Fallout 4. And it cannot. So I have decided that there is no one who should ever game on a phone and mobile gaming cannot be worth it. And I just like, man, that is a perfect example of one of the most useless comments I've ever had on YouTube. And I feel bad for that person because they're so limited and they don't even know. And they think they're being, like, like critical. Like, they feel like they're adding to a conversation with critique. And they are not. Again, I'm kind of fine pointing to those and saying, like, you have an opinion. Your opinion is wrong. 
I'm tired of like defending bad hot takes by, oh, it's just my opinion. And it's just your opinion. And you're like, no, my opinion is coming from the fact that I'm trying to demonstrate with consistency performance per watt. Your opinion is just, I like this thing better. So no, we are not the same. <laughs> Canox 80. I, I love these little small form. So don't get me wrong. I just need to properly position. Kenox says, a Celeron is entry-level Chromebooks, still pretty decent for some 8-bit and 16-bit game emulators. Um, yes, so RetroArch, Retro whatever you use to emulate like old Nintendo games or something, um, it does great. Uh, I do not want to dismiss how much I love these little mini PCs. I very much enjoy these little mini PCs, but I think it's critically important to properly categorize them because someone's going to say, oh, you can get a whole computer for like 200 bucks? And you're like, yes, but it is a $200 computer. <laughs> so if you have a kid out there and they're like, hey man, I, I really want to play uh, Elden Ring. Oh no. Oh no. This is going to struggle with Tetris if you just natively want to do that. But what you're saying is absolutely on point. Um, that entry-level Chromebook experience exists for a good reason. And that's because that's really the level of daily compute power average consumers might need. Web browser, documents, being able to read and edit spreadsheets, and a reasonably good job of streaming 4K media. Like, doing a 4K Netflix stream works really well on this little box. That's great. That's uh, the vast majority of what low-level compute needs are. $200. The bare-bones kit, where you don't have the RAM and the SSD, is 150 bucks. And it's a full computer that you can upgrade, add more RAM, add more storage, have all the ports, plug-in media. It's got a memory card reader on it. It's a full little laptop just in a cute little shell. And you plug it into whatever screen you want. So I'm, I'm a huge fan. I'm not trying to, I'm not trying to besmirch the uh, low-cost, small-form factor Nook clone market right now. Because right now, those are some really fun project PCs. But I also have to point out, like, Tetris Effect is not that demanding. It's, it's a kind of a graphics-intense game for what it is, but it's not, like, AAA current next-gen graphics. It's not Red Dead Redemption, right? You know, it's Tetris. <laughs> it's, it's blocks falling from the top of the screen, and a Celeron is not going to play that. <laughs> <laughs> at all. Yeah, Jonathan, RIP Stadia. I'm still mad that Google did that because they proved it. They did the proof of concept. Stadia showed us that game streaming was legit. And now Microsoft is actually going to benefit from that the most. Having game streaming as a part of Game Pass is such a huge perk. I mean, it's enormous. Game Pass is a good value for people who like to play games and you're going through different titles and like, oh, this got added to the Game Pass library, just like Netflix. This is great. But that you can then also stream a select number of titles without installing anything on a computer or investing in expensive uh, gaming hardware is huge. I mean, that is such a huge perk. And Google had it. 
and they were demonstrating it. And I just fired up like, well, let's see, see, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, seven phones just lit up because I said the G word. Um, Let's turn them all off. Go to bed. Go to bed, little baby G. There you go. Um, (laughs) Sorry. Uh, I, I lost my train of thought there, but Stadia kind of highlighted, Stadia kind of proved that this could work. And I was really hoping that Google would license the streaming technology to other developers. Like imagine Steam powered by Stadia. So you pay Steam 10 bucks a month and anything in your Steam library can be streamed. Instead of a Steam link where I have to render the graphics locally on a PC and then I can send the game to another controller and screen, what if it was just Stadia but with your Steam catalog? And that's kind of what like um, NVIDIA, the, the, the NVIDIA uh, 4080 tier of their streaming service is kind of doing too. I, I feel like Google totally dropped the ball and then reinforced why you should never really adopt a Google service. It was just more evidence to say like, oh, but I mean, that sounds like a cool project, but we know Google's going to kill it. And it's just like Netflix now. Oh, that looks like a really cool show. I'm not going to stream that show until I know it has a proper ending. It just reinforces the negative association in your brain and it kills me. Because they don't need to do that. Because imagine also, we've proved that game streaming works. What if you just leased workstation time? I mean, think about that. You've got like a content creator out there. They're wanting to step up into like really, really uh, nice 4K video editing. They don't have a beefy rig to edit 4K video. And they don't want to jump through a whole bunch of hoops. You could lease server time on a beefy server They could upload some of their video clips, edit and render off of that big beefy server, cost you like, I don't know, 15, 20 bucks a month. And instead of spending $5,000 on a PC, you could pad out leasing time on another workstation with an operating system and software that you can use. Like Adobe could make that jump. DaVinci could make that jump. Google could demonstrate that jump, but we're still kind of, we're still kind of working, working out some of the problems with streaming compute power from other resources. (laughs) Owen Scott, that is kind of true, man. Um, They're just jealous that other people can enjoy games on weaker computers than what they can enjoy games on. And that's true for camera snobs, too. Every time I bring up a one-inch sensor on, like, a camera subreddit, it's just, well, but I mean, it's not as good as my full frame. Yeah, that wasn't what we were talking about. you're, You're defending something against no one who was attacking you. You're that sensitive about your enormous financial investment in standalone mirrorless cameras and lenses that you can't handle someone saying, yeah, these one-inch sensors are really fun to shoot on. No, uh you, you You need a Sony Alpha A7. That's what you need. Uh, all right. <laughs> Oh, I can play cyberpunk on these things. Game streaming is awesome. A bunch of people are saying, like, Fallout 4, but what about Crisis or The Witcher? I think Crisis did get an Android port. I want to say it was one of the NVIDIA services that I think did bring some of those beefier games to Android, and they played fine. Again, for the time, they were probably limited to, like, 30 frames per second. Not the best, but old Android 
was powerful enough to play Crisis. Crisis is not the bench that we need to sort of highlight. <laughs> Let's see. Let me just kind of wrap up a few more of these comments and then we have to tap out. Ah, Flowtech Wolf. I love game streaming because as someone with ADHD, I can't sit in one place for a while. So being able to move around and still play my games is awesome. And the more you kind of drill down, it gets so good. I, I mean, like if, if you can look at a future purchase or saving up for a, a portable console of some kind, I totally get the infrastructure from Nintendo. Um, the Switch is a juggernaut for a good reason. I mean, it is such a, a highly consumer-targeted experience. It's the easiest way to just buy a slate that plays games and install those games and go. Um, but if you can do a little tinkering on a Steam Deck or you can jump through some of those hoops on Android, on, on a mobile, you can like add controllers and stuff like that. It is so delicious, like, moving your gaming away from, like, a beefy rig. My workstation is built for video editing and rendering, but it's really good at playing games, and I hate playing games in here. I hate it. I hate trying to unwind and relax and enjoy immersive media in the exact same place that I spend hours editing videos and writing scripts. I need to get out of this room more. And the second I pick up my Steam Deck, or now I pick up this Razer Edge, or I clip a controller onto a nice phone, I'm off. <laughs> like I can, I can just, I can finally like focus on the game, even though I know graphic fidelity way, way lower. You know, the the, the resolution, the frame rate, everything would be better here, and I don't care. Everything would be better here. It would be awesome. But that's not the gig. <laughs> the gig is having fun playing those games. And I can't really detach from that when, when I also work in here. It's, again, it's, we're, we're, we're right on the cusp. Uh, blurring these lines, the value proposition of consoles, and the ability to mix our entertainment experiences and, and kind of spread out our entertainment dollars is getting really interesting. It's getting really exciting. <laughs> Dave Burns, one is officially an old... All right, so I think we should probably kind of cap it there. Um, what did we learn this week, folks? Uh, One-inch sensors are better than higher resolution. Uh, be on the lookout for it, it, some more investigation of terrible business practices from some of our market leaders. Uh, be, be a little skeptical of knee-jerk reacting headlines, and if they're based on scientific studies, don't listen to someone's analysis of the study. You can just read the study. And then lastly, there are so many opportunities to play really fun games to get more bang for your subscription dollars. Like if you're on Netflix and you're not really happy with their video streaming solutions, you should also check out some of their games while you still have your Netflix subscription because they're pretty good. And then the devices that we can use to play those games are increasingly shockingly powerful at lower and lower prices. For all of the, the frustrating side of our tech conversation right now, the thing that we keep walking away from is a democratization of processing power, camera performance, and gaming performance. And increasingly, like, 
I am even more reluctant to recommend people go up to those $1,000 plus tier phones until I hear that they have a specific need or want to start pushing that performance to $1,000. Because if you don't, I think mean, this Razor Edge starts at 400 and it can do things that $400 dedicated gaming consoles can sometimes struggle to achieve. I feel like that's pretty good. <laughs> I feel like that's an important distinction to make in all of this commentary. Um, so yeah, uh, it, it's it's about maximizing your bang for buck. And I'm not going to be impressed when someone says, "Well, oh, but you know, like a iPhone 14 is $800. Why? Why are you spending $800 for what's sort of the mainstream regular flavor of an iPhone? What is it doing? that justifies $800 when so many other devices are pretty good, pretty close for a lot less. So, uh, folks, this was one of the most scattered podcasts I think I've ever had. So next week is probably going to be more of the same. (laughs) Next week is the last Monday of February. We're going to be right on the heels of MWC announcements and other embargoes lifting. And I, I, like this week, I'm, I'm kind of feeling like next week's show. So, so the last Monday of every month is always going to be our pajama podcast. Anyway, I feel the timing is perfect for an off-the-cuff off no news block or, or stories to link to specifically. And we're going to be in that zone. So we should probably uh, kind of just lean into it. I'm probably going to be just as scattered. So um, next week, Pajama Podcast uh, for Thursday. I don't know if we're going to be going Thursday or Friday, but TK and I are going to be talking more, um, just some of the the tech, the news of the week. Uh, definitely be on the lookout for the rest of the folks that are streaming out there, like uh, Gadget Goddess, GG is streaming tomorrow, Easy Computer Solutions, iTalks Tech, um, Easy's podcast, uh, LaShawn, holla at your boy, just has a fun casual chat, uh, tech chat on Fridays, El Jefe Reviews, um, uh, streaming some of the best stuff that you've ever seen on Audio Gear, I believe he's going up on Sunday, it's, there's a great crew of people that are spreading out some knowledge and not just falling into the algorithm trap of, most popular is the bestest and the only one worth buying, because it's not true, and we can have a lot more fun when we acknowledge good competition. So, uh, folks, be safe. Um, if you have the means, please look into organizations and charities that can help support the people that are still struggling with uh, infrastructure and earthquakes in Turkey. Um, I will have a couple links just as places to start not as the only recommendations for organizations to donate to. And if you have any suggestions, please drop a comment on the show notes for this week's episode on somegadgetguy.com. And that just goes hand in hand with my sort of saying every week that I hope you're taking care of yourself. Take care of yourself so that you can continue to help take care of others. And I'll catch you back here next week for another episode of the Monday Morning Tech Chat Show on the SGGQA podcast channel. Be safe, take care. I love y'all. I'll catch you back. Recording voiceover, spoken word, is truly one of my favorite activities. My second favorite hobby is photography. Now, 
The smartphone might be making us deaf, but we can't deny the awesome power of the phone as a platform for photography and multimedia creation. If you've been looking to improve your mobile photog skills, if you want to produce more professional content, or you're just looking to take your family photos to the next level, I wrote a book to help you out with that. Take Better Photos, Smartphone Photography for Noobs is available on Amazon Kindle. Walking through the basic terminology of photography, covering the settings on your camera, discussing composition and inspiration, and I even include a long list of exercises and challenges to really hone your skills, all with some helpful example photos and diagrams. Search for Take Better Photos, Smartphone Photography for Noobs on Amazon, or use the quick link bit.ly slash betterphotosbook to grab your copy today.